Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Very excited about today's conversation. Brian Hill is back. Brian Edward Hill. Brian Hill. Call him what you may. Uh, it's great to talk to Brian again. I uh, really enjoyed our first conversation. Shame on me for waiting as long as I did. Brian uh, doing a great body of work. Postal was an incredible series he co-wrote with Matt Hawkins for Top Cow. Then took it over. So many great one-shots and various things that led to uh, this year's breakout year. He had that great arc in Detective Comics that was kind of a backdoor pilot for The Outsiders. Outsiders coming in 2019. We get an update on the status of that. His book with Dexter Soy. He is doing Killmonger for Marvel, a great five-issue miniseries that kind of tells a prequel story leading up to the Black Panther movie and the great moment in uh, the comics, the encounter with T'Challa. It really fleshes out Eric Killmonger's character, and it's uh, it's a great story. I compare it to Lex Luthor's journey in Smallville in terms of we know where it's going, we know where it's going to end. How did he get there? What What were the steps that Eric Killmonger took? to lead him where he was and vertigo man uh vertigo is back in a big way and i've been covering that we had a conversation with ben blacker about hex wives and brian is there representing the crime aspect of vertigo american carnage a great first issue uh, a very intriguing idea if you like hundred bullets if you like scalped i think this is the same kind of milieu if you will but it's uh definitely its own original story and uh, it's it's very intriguing, and it's a great start. Leandro Fernandez and Brian are, are doing a great job. Dean White on colors. Uh, a really, really great first issue, and I'm thrilled to talk to Brian about that. Plus, he's working on Titans, and I'm a convert, man. I Believe me, I was a doubter. We all saw that trailer at San Diego, and we're like, yeah, grim and gritty. Yeah, it looks kind of more like Suicide Squad than something better. What the hell's going on? But I got to tell you, I'm nine episodes in on Titans, and I really do love the show. I am okay with the changes of the core Titan members. And, man, Doom Patrol, Hawk and Dove, Donna Troy, Jason Todd, all winners. Every time any of those people step on the screen, it is fantastic. It is consistent with what you want from the DC Universe. And I'm telling you, Donna Troy absolutely knocked me out. Uh, God, uh, Jason Todd was a great contrast to uh, Dick Grayson. I almost wondered if they were going to reverse roles. And um, it's early Jason Todd, but it's it's good. I like it. And uh, Brian wrote a, the fifth episode and the seventh episode. Those were his. And I believe they're called Together. I think that's episode five. And then Asylum. And uh, it's it's great stuff. And I'm telling you, the Doom Patrol. Oh, my God. It's the Doom Patrol. Jeez, I, Gabe Hardman, I got to I gotta text him and see if he saw it because it's everything all of us old school Doom Patrol fans ever wanted. It's the original core group, <laughs> and it's great. And, and of course, do we doubt Jeff Johns? It's so great that Jeff is able to play both in the uh, comic realm and also the television and film realm, and his influence on the TV side is definitely being felt, and Brian confirms that. So we have a nice conversation about Titans, but also... Uh, Brian and I are buzzing about Creed 2. Can't help it, man. Such a great movie. And uh, and also, you know, Brian is, in, uh, you know, he's a screenwriter and reveals some of pa- uh, his past projects and also some future ideas. And if you follow him on Twitter, you know that he is toying with some ideas of experimentation on 
some of the new digital platforms, not just streaming, but really, you know, I mean, YouTube and some other things as well. We get into that a little bit. I urge you to follow Brian on um, on Twitter because he's he's very interesting and I think uh, really shows his cards in terms of what he's thinking of. And anyone who has any sort of creative bent can learn a lot from Brian's creative journey and where he's going with his career. So really, I'm 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 really glad that our acquaintanceship continues to grow and you can hear it in this conversation with brian hill on today's word balloon it's all brought to you by the league of word balloon listeners thank you league for your support really excited about uh you know the support i get from uh, the patrons of patreon and the subscribers of word balloon word balloon is free it'll always be free got to stress that every episode i don't want you to get the wrong idea but if you enjoy what i do and want to help out the cause uh, you can subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon. Is it worth a dollar a month? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month uh, to enhance your love of uh, of the hobby? I hope so. I try to bring you great content every month, and uh, today's episode is a prime example of that. So uh, you can subscribe to Word Balloon by going to wordballoon.com, clicking on the Patreon ad, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. This episode of Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics, who continue to shake things up at your local comic shop. Great hit series, things like Lollipop Kids from Adam and Aiden Glass and Diego Yapur. Margaret Bennett and Raphael De La Tour doing great things with Animosity. A Walk Through Hell by Garth Ennis and Gordon Suzuka. They've got some great uh, graphic novels and hardcovers that are available now. Things like Baby Teeth, Year One hardcover from uh, Donnie Cates and Gary Brown. It's the first 10 issues of the Baby T series, and it's in stores now. There's, of course, uh, great trades from Paul Jenkins and Wesley St. Clair representing Beyonders. And Witchhammer, Aftershock's first original graphic novel, Cullen Bunn and Dalibor Talajic. It's coming in stores on the 19th, and uh, very excited about that series. We're going to be talking to Cullen in the days ahead about that series and also, of course, his book, The Brothers Dracul, and uh, some other things from Cullen Bunn as well. But you don't have to wait. Go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books and more to order through your local shop at AfterShockComics.com. All right, let's get into our conversation now with Brian Hill. Very excited to welcome him back. Funny guy great observations and doing great work for dc and marvel and uh vertigo pretty neat stuff and uh, happy to talk to him about it and uh what's going on in hollywood too i can't help it man i'm fascinated by the evolution of movies how streaming television has impacted films um i keep bringing it up stars and and directors have complained about the new status quo in in movie theaters and what flies, it seems like it's either got to be a kids animated movie or a, you know a YA movie or you know DC and Marvel fair and the like. Uh, you know where what happened to the dramas and the buddy cop movies that would dominate a movie season and be the hits of the year. Those things aren't really making the impact that they used to. And serious dramas kind of come and go. God, I just missed Hugh Jackman's new movie about Gary Hart called The Front Runner. Really wanted to see it and obviously didn't make a big impact in theaters. It got decent reviews as far as I remember, but uh, wasn't able to see it. I missed it. First Man, the Neil Armstrong movie. I missed it. Uh, I hope my uh, Screen Actors Guild screeners... Uh, have those among them so I can see them. If not, I can see them on streaming, but that's the problem, man. A lot of us wait. We don't go to the theaters for those movies anymore. We're okay to wait a couple months when they show up on on streaming. 
Um, so we discussed that. It's it's a really fun conversation because because Brian's in the thick of it, um, you know, pitching pitching screenplays and working in streaming television. So I wanted to get his point of view as well. You're going to enjoy this conversation with Brian Edward Hill on Word Balloon. Oh, that's great, hundred percent. So you're Brian Hill now. You're not doing Edward anymore. You know, I or, need to clean that up. Okay. I don't. I don't really care. Okay, and and I think. <laughs> Someone asked me, and I forgot that I had said the former when I gave them the latter, and so okay. now comicsology is confused. So um, I have to just clean that up. Brian Hill is easier. There's yeah. actually a few Brian Hills out there on Twitter, um, but I don't care. Well, and I almost yeah. wondered if there were, you know, SAG or, you know, Writing Guild or Directing Guild uh, Brian Hills as well. And I figured yeah. maybe that's why you're doing the Edward as well to differentiate. Oh, it, it usually if you if you think there's method to something, uh, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's it's me being lunkheaded and all good, man. Making a mistake. <laughs> no, well, I noticed on the credits for uh, Killmonger and uh, you know American Carnage too, and and Titans for that matter. And I'm like, all right, good, Brian Hill, so be it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna go with Brian Hill. Um, and I'll have some weird anomalies on uh, on Wikipedia, I guess. But um, I don't. I'm still getting used to this whole professional writer thing, man. It's <laughs> whatever still... you're doing, it's it's working out, man. So you know, <laughs> it's it's moving I'm in the right direction. This, this suit. I'm trying to wear this suit, man. <laughs> I understand exactly. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm rolling. So when you're ready, we will start. Oh yeah, I am ready. All right. Here we go. Brian Hill, welcome back to Word Balloon. Man, in just a few short months, you are like all over the place. It's, you know, like every now and then the media hype machine. And it's not, forgive the comparison, but it is kind of like, you know, like when when there's an actor out there and you see him for the first time and then suddenly there are three more movies. And they just kind of like pro- pop up like dandelions in a field or whatever. But again, well, that's a, I, I think that's, these are all I think negative like comparisons, and I don't mean to. Be, I don't mean for it to. Sound no, no, negative. no. That's, that's great. I, I, I think it's a direct result of being on your your show. Oh, stop! Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the word balloon buzz. Absolutely, man. It's the word balloon effect. I, it, hey, you know, I've heard about it from a lot of people, man. Uh, you know, it's like going on Fallon or something, man. Like you just do that, and then the rest of the rest of it is just downhill. It's truly, like the greatest compliment I get on social media is when a follower will say, "I never thought I would have read." X until I heard the writer or the artist on your show and now I'm hooked and I always retweeted and I always put the system works so I will so that is my quote now the system works so very good yeah I got tons of people that checked in with me after I I appeared on your show the first time oh that's Uh, great and uh, I'm really grateful uh, oh dude are you kidding Uh, mutually so sir we 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 hit it off the first time and it's uh it's time to continue the uh the acquaintanceship as it as it progresses, so no, absolutely, man. So, congrats on all the recent stuff. I mean, last time we talked, you were in the midst of the Detective Comics arc, which I, I think anyone who was reading was suspecting that it was kind of a backdoor pilot for a new Outsider yeah. series, and the cat is out of the bag now. So we can at least talk about that in the near future, correct? Yes, all true. So when's that coming up? Uh, Outsiders will be out next year. Uh, they pushed back the release. Oh, okay. And I think- I think it has something to do with just like the scheduling stuff. Sure. Um, sure. Anything else, you know, like what they've got coming along and, and, and all of that. And I think they wanted to give it its own space. I'm actually grateful that they pushed it back because I've got Killmonger out there right now. American yeah. Carnage just launched. And yeah. I, I wouldn't want to overexpose myself with 
like three number ones in the span of two or three months. I think that's a lot of that. I'm with you. So uh, I'm I'm kind of glad that we're going to get a little bit of a of of, uh, of a window, you know, to kind of let people get tired of me and then come <laughs> read me. Again, you know, will the will the collection of the detective arc be out before the first Outsiders? Oh yeah, I think it's out now. I, okay, it, I wasn't sure. Okay, people have been tweeting um, to me about picking it up, and I, I got my comps a, a, a bit ago, so I do believe it's in stores now. Cool. Oh, that's excellent, man. Um, yeah, it's it's surreal, John. Like, you know, for a kid that grew up going to the library and checking out Batman trades because he <laughs> couldn't afford to to buy all the monthlies. Sure. Like a trade paperback with your name on it, and it's Batman. And to see, you know, readers who are who are really awesome, like talking about your work on Batman, it's it's really surreal. It feels like you're kind of inside someone else's life sometimes. Well, you earned your place, man. I mean, again, as I told you, Isaac Goodhart was like, you got to get Brian on, man. I'm telling you, Postal, we did a great job. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> And then when I saw that you were doing the detective, I'm like, oh, yeah, Jesus. I'm like, come on. It's been too long. we got to pull the trigger and make this thing happen. And it was a great story. It was terrific, man. And again, Postal, people, much like the Rick Remenders, the Matt Fractions, the Bendises out there that you know make their mark at one of the big two. And then everyone goes, oh, what else have they done? It's like, funny you should ask. Why don't you check this stuff out? And, yeah, uh, that, you know. that, that kind of the, the, the way that people look back into your bibliography is, is really fascinating, you know, because I've had – People that have read, um, you know, like maybe they, maybe the first thing they picked up from me is Killmonger number one, right? Right. Because sure. They don't they don't read DC, but they read Marvel, or they, you know, they wanted to read a Killmonger book, and they never heard of me before. Then they see all the other stuff I've done, and they reach back and, and they read it, and and it's it's a testament to you know the kind of the enduring quality of of books, right? You know, like with with movies and shows and that sort of thing. People might not look backwards a lot. Like I, like, I love Hannibal, for instance. I think Hannibal is some of the greatest television I've seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I have never seen an episode of Pushing Daisies. And I know that Brian Fuller did it. Yep. I know that people hold it in high regard. I'm a fan. Yep. Um, I just haven't gone back to it because I've just been busy just, you know, doing other things. But with, uh, with books, people really do seem to check back in. And they look you up online, go to your Wikipedia page and see what else is there and, and – your your older stuff finds a new audience, um, and that's uh, that's great. You know, really yeah, 100%, man. And, yeah, moving forward as you continue to do creator-owned stuff, I mean, yeah, it's I think uh, it'll go hand-in-hand hand with the mainstream. And it's 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 been fun watching that evolution of the business because, as I like to say to even older creators, when DC and Marvel was the top of the mountain, that's what was the, that was the goal. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, well, I grew up, you know um, – I mean, I was still kind of grown. Actually, I was post college, but like post college, it was still very much Wizard Magazine, right? It was sure. still that's that's what it was, and uh, you you know you kind of did everything to try to get noticed by the big two, and obviously the big two are still very important. But we've got this interesting kind of triangulation where you start doing indie work, and then if your indie work uh, catches the attention of someone, you move into big two work. And then you kind of move into this parallel bit of doing indie work and big two work again, right? Yep. And, it, you know, there, it's it's coming and, like, returning. It's leaving and returning. Um, you know, think about, you know, Gillen. You know, Die, number one, just came out, which is an, an amazing book. Uh, uh, people should definitely go pick that up. Uh, and, you know, and Caron has done 
you know, so much uh, interesting work in kind of both parts of it. Yeah. So there's, it, 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 there's no, there's no real trajectory as much as there's like this sort of cycle, you know, of Agreed. doing this, doing that. And I think that's good. You know, it's, it's, it's good that it's okay and kind of precedent set that you can do big two stuff. You can do indie stuff. You can come back and do big two stuff. Um, and I think that gives you just more options creatively. Well, right now, like I said, where you're having a moment, you mentioned uh, the two books that are out right now, American Carnage and Killmonger. Uh, let's start with Killmonger hmm. because that's interesting. It's kind of a prequel. Uh, I mean, it happened in the comics, but anyone who had seen Black Panther will pick this up and understand where we're starting. And as you say, we know where the story is going, but it really it's all about the journey because this is uh, the, the things that happened, the events that happened prior to his re- emergence in Black Panther, correct? Yeah, like when, when so Will Moss uh, and Sarah Brunstad over at Marvel, those are my editors on the project, when they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a Killmonger miniseries, my original feeling was no. Uh, <laughs> mainly because, you know, I felt like, well, you know, I, I, I've seen that story told in comics before, Uh I, I realize the movie is very popular and there's a renewed interest in the character and, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates is doing uh, strong work and uh, Evan Narcisse did strong work in Rise of the Black Panther. Mm-hmm. But, he, but Evan had also touched on some of the Killmonger aspects in, in his miniseries. So I, d- I didn't know what that would really be and I didn't want to just do like a cash-in sort of thing. Like, sure. well, the movie worked, so let's make more. Uh so I had to think about it. I'm like, well, what would I really do? What would I really do? And I, I decided on not necessarily just kind of mapping out the trajectory of the character through, like, the spheres that turns him into the guy at Warrior Falls. But instead, I wanted to do something a little intimate um, that was more about the the thought process and how a person uh, winds up subscribing to vengeance as uh you know like a main path you know mm-hmm. exclusive to everything else um and so i pitched them a story that i was sure they were going to reject because you know the kingpin was in it and, uh, <laughs> other marvel characters sure i think actually will had an idea about maybe the kingpin so i had incorporated some stuff and and did all that uh but they liked it and i was like okay cool like this is a story that's interesting to me it, you know like I, I, I love the idea that after the miniseries is over and, you know, if you read, like, if there's another Killmonger narrative or, or something that people still, you know, kind of revisit, um, that you might be able to see some of these events in him. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's, to me, that's the most interesting part about doing a prequel is, you know, now, now you know what Vader really means when he tells Luke, Obi-Wan has taught you well. Right, like sure. experience those moments, or, uh, or or I'll even say from a television standpoint, one of the best things about Smallville was you see Lex turn, and it's Lex's story, and we know where Lex is going, but it's it it is, and it also it always makes it it's going to be interesting with your story because in the case of Lex, it is very sympathetic. You got Killmonger pretty much. I mean, I've read the for only the first issue, obviously, but I mean, he's making he's making vengeful choices. Uh, in the street, in the bedroom. Uh, that was fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I knew that they were just going to like 
tell me I couldn't do that, and and they did, and I was, and they, they, I mean, they didn't tell me I couldn't do it, and it stayed in there. Like a lot of Killmonger is me seeing what Marvel would let me get away with, Good and they you. let me get away with like most of it. Um, well, yeah, John, you know the. <laughs> Eric isn't a character that you can start off in, I think, a place of a naivete, right? Like, because the trauma hit him so early in life yes. that you you have to engage that. And so it's it's really a story about a person that has an adolescent understanding of vengeance um, and justice and all of that and then comes to kind of... A, a more mature and kind of darker relationship with those things. And the, the best way I can articulate that is to tell a story about a character who almost escapes it. Right. Sure. And, and that's why I think it's sort of a tragedy, you know, because totally. it's, you know, think about Othello, you know, the, the, the tragedy of Othello is if he would just talk to Michael Cassio and just ask him, are you sleeping with my wife? Then all of it could have gone away. Then Iago's plan would have been revealed and all of that. Um, and I think you have to, in these stories, hope for a better result, even though you know you're not really going to get one. So, uh, you know, without going into plot details, Eric has opportunities to to live a different life. You know, he has he gets uh, opportunities to do so, and circumstances both within and you know, kind of beyond his control, uh, kind of box him in to to where we know him to be, right? Uh, cool. And and that was an interesting thing thing to really do. And there's a love story in this book, sort of. And I think I think people aren't going to really expect that. I'm really interested in how people react to that aspect of the story, because and it's I mean really honestly I mean I, I did some work in Postal that was that was kind of around like a romance between characters. Uh, but uh, as far as like big two work goes, this is kind of the first time I've done something like that. And I don't think it's something that people would expect from a Killmonger story, but it's very important to me that, you know, you kind of see that aspect of it. I love it. And I, um, now we mentioned the Kingpin. Mm-hmm. Can we mention the other group that he is fi- finding himself in association with? Are these, are oh, yeah, these established? Sure. And, uh, you know, cause I'll be honest, man, I am, I am more of a DC, uh, history person, than a Marvel history person. So sometimes a character or characters will pop up. Is this an invention of your own, or have we seen this group before? It's an invention of my own. So oh, for, cool. for people that uh, haven't read the book, um, in, in Killmonger 1, he sort of falls in uh, through a lot of violent consequence into a group of, I would call them low-level mutants that are working with uh, Wilson Fisk, the, the kingpin. And... I, I wanted to expand the idea of what Marvel Universe characters could be involved in, you know, and because we we've got we you know, we've got these tiers, right? So you've got the super villains who are like the god level super villains, mm-hmm. you know, like your Magnetos or your Doctor Dooms, what have you, and and then you have another set of costume villains who aren't necessarily like the arch gigantic stone statue sort of villains um, like your claws and, yeah. and those, those folks. Yeah. But I also wanted to explore how criminal enterprise would work with people who had just enough power to make them dangerous, but not really enough power to work with professor Xavier. Uh, and I thought like, well, this could be really interesting if it almost had a bit of a Michael Mann feel right. Like 
what what do you do in the Marvel universe when you know you've got you've got a little bit of power, but you probably can't beat Mister Sinister in a fight, and you probably can't stop Cyclops from blasting you with a ruby red beam. <laughs> Um, and maybe you just grew up in a situation where you never met, you know, people who knew Xavier or you never met people who knew like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And you just had to figure out your way. Um, so they're a group of uh, a kind of freelance characters that are working their way up through Fisk's uh, empire, you know, trying to build a life for themselves. And they're named after chess pieces. We have a uh, we have King. We have Rook. Uh, we have Knight. Uh, she's not Misty Knight. Some people got that confused, and that's probably my fault. But she's oh, a- okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. Now that's funny because I didn't think of Misty, but I, I took. I honestly took them as like a Marvel version of the Royal Flush Gang. A little uh, bit, yeah, like you I mean, know, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like a, kind of like a more, you know, powerful. John John Cassavetes, more powerful version. I like that of 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 those folks <laughs> um, because Eric's Eric's world is to me a very grounded world. Yeah, right. Like it would make some fascinating to me is you know he is from kind of all of the people he like he represents the people that are left behind in a way Mm -hmm. right people that don't get saved and rescued or even noticed uh and he's a guy that's building himself into someone that can essentially take on you know almost like a divine king right like that's ultimately where he has to go like how does a prodigal outcast take on Pharaoh himself in the center of Egypt and, 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 you know, and how could he ascend into a place where he could do that? So it just seemed like natural to kind of want to build his world with some verisimilitude sure, and, and, uh, put that kind of consequence in it, you know? Um, uh, so, so yeah, like, uh, 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 those characters are an invention of my own, uh, because you know, the, that, that aspect of Marvel, uh, the Marvel U doesn't really have a lot of stuff to pull from. Uh, and I think it should be there. And it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, how does a crime book work in the Marvel universe? And, uh, uh the, you know, Killmonger in a lot of ways is a book about crime and criminals. Will we see other street level? Because, you know, there, there are the sons of the dragon back in the day. And, uh, you know, obviously heroes for hire and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, so are there other Marvel characters that are recognizable that will show up in the miniseries? Well, there's there's definitely one Marvel character that's very recognizable that shows up in the series. Uh, you don't and, have to reveal. <laughs> and um, I think I think the cover actually might be out there somewhere. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so Black Widow. Is oh, coming. makes sense. Sure. And and that and and see and, and that's I think that's going to be kind of interesting to people too because I'm really approaching Shield from Eric's point of view, right? So. The book is in Eric's point of view. Of course. So the vision of S.H.I.E.L.D. in this book isn't what we're normally used to. It's it's almost like how a professional thief would view the CIA. Right? Understood. With its, yes. With its complexity and kind of moral gray areas and turning people into assets and the rest of it. So there's a little bit of a commentary on, on how an opera, how an organization like that would work and what is expendability really. And all of those things get dealt with and how does redemption work and what's the price of it is, was one of the questions I'm engaging there. So she, she certainly shows up and it's a side of Natasha that isn't particularly attractive. Um, that speaks to what you have to kind of be when you're an agent and you're involved in recruitment and all of that stuff. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that complicates the issue a little bit. So, you know, Killmonger is really about Eric and how Eric is sort of failed by himself and by other people consistently. 
Um, and that brings them closer and closer to the kind of crash course trajectory that we, we know he's going to ultimately travel. That's great, man. And that plays into Natasha's true uh, beginnings when we first see her in Iron Man, way back in the – Christ, when I was a child, when I, when I was a toddler, basically, when that stuff was coming out. And, yeah, that's great, man, because I do think that is – we shouldn't forget about that with Black Widow. It's kind of like Hank Pym and the domestic uh, violence thing. It's like, you know, there's there's something ugly in Hank Pym. It's deep, deep down, and it's a shame. And I don't even know today if he's still merged with Ultron or not, because I know that was something recent during Civil War II and all that stuff. But, you know, yeah, there, there, that is Natasha's flaw is, you know, she was, she was a dirty tricks person, putting it in CIA, Nixonian kind of terms and stuff. And it's... Ooh. And yeah. that should still be part of her character, and we shouldn't forget that. And it's all, you know, it's again, it's that's what, it's the flaws that make the characters interesting. It's that simple. Well, you know, Eric as a character, um, you know, I think he hates what he views are hypocrisies, mm-hmm. right? Like that's really <laughs> that's the comment about when he has his little uh, sexual encounter. Yeah, ex- you know. <laughs> I don't like, want to tip it. I don't even want to say it. But that was so fantastic. And then she's just like, what did he call me? <laughs> right. Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't, I, I'm, I'm offended, but I don't know I don't why. Know why. <laughs> but I know I should be, and I am, right? <laughs> it's well, – well, you know, there's, there's a power to being a person who's very in tune with what they want. And who is willing to express that openly. Uh, and, and that's what I took from Michael Jordan's performance in, in the movie. You know, because I, when, I, when I first started working on the thing, I did reach out to uh, his production company. Uh, oh, cool. Because I've taken some meetings, um, you know, with them. And I'm kind of friendly, friendly with, that, with, that, uh, with that group. Okay. So, and I wanted to kind of check in, sort of tell them what I was doing and get some perspective just to make sure that you know it, it felt like it was kind of honoring the work that him and Ryan and Kevin had done on the movie, Kevin Feige, Ryan Coogler. Um, while still, you know, it is in the 616, so it is still based on the comic book universe, but I wanted to make it a bit of a syncretic work. Yeah, you want um, it accessible, man. No, because, oh, again, this is Killmonger's back on everyone's mind because of Michael Jordan in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And what I, I, I look at the world around us. And we are, we often willfully distance ourselves from the truth of what we want in the world. We're taught to be polite about it. We're taught not to just go for the thing sometimes. And uh, Eric isn't a character who subscribes to that at all. You know, he wants to be the most direct line between you know, where he is and where he wants to go. And there is a power in that, in that certainty of desire, right? There's, there's something magnetic about that. I mean, that's why a lot of villains and, and sociopaths in the real world have a magnetism because they are, in a lot of ways, they're more clear about desire than, than the righteous who can seem muddled, who can, can seem a little confused, who are still struggling to reconcile things. But there is a, a clarity in in a villain who's who's accepted certain aspects of their nature, and that's really what Eric is. You know, he's a shark, you know, kind of uh, a character that can only go forward, right? Uh, and you know, whether it's in interpersonal relationships or it's you know doing uh, uh, an assassination or a criminal enterprise, whatever it is, 
he's he's a shark. He can only move forward. And and really, that moment was about what it would be like to be in a room with someone like that, you know, uh, and and how rare it is that someone can be direct about things. But everything with him is about conquest, you know. Uh, uh, he's he's always fighting battles and winning wars. So you've got a character where if you have an interpersonal relationship with him, it's really a battle of wills. Um, and so that moment there in the book, you know, it, it's a seduction of sorts, but it really is. It's a battle. It's a battle he wanted to win. Yeah. Well, she's she's trying to. Well, I, I don't even want to say I'm, again. I'm sure if you read the book, you know what we're talking about. If you haven't read the book, it's fantastic. It's an interlude. It informs like exactly what Brian said about Eric. He and they use he is absolutely he must win every relationship. He must be the dominant force. And like you said, he's a shark. After the conquest, you move on. You're always moving forward. And it's it's great. No, it's it's very adult in the best way. It's not salacious. It's uh and I'm really glad because I think every now and then when Marvel drifts beyond PG thirteen, uh there's all all of a sudden there's all these bloggers and, and forgive me bloggers, I don't mean to generalize, but that oh that's wrong. That's inappropriate. That's and it's like shut up. These comic books are a medium. They are not a, a genre. Don't don't force them. I don't even know. I'm a, actually I'm gonna look on the cover right now if there's a what the rating is. I think it's a mature content, or it's like the MA or something like that. Um, as I as I understand it, like well, when I was when I was growing up and I was reading comics, I always gravitated towards the the ones that had a little bit of extremity because it was it spoke. I mean, you know, like you're an adolescent, you're like full of hormones, you're just full of energy, you got a lot of sanguine passions. You respond to that kind of stuff. And if I'm listening to, I mean, at the time, you know, me as a kid, we're talking about a kid who's listening to, like, heavy metal and public enemy, you know, and I'm watching R-rated action films. Sure. That's where my headspace is, RoboCop, right? Sure. So, you know, I I always gravitated towards work that seemed to touch the flame uh, a little bit. Uh, That's just kind of how my imagination works. I did, like, a Miles Morales one-shot, and people were like, Brian, you know, oh, I like the story. You, know, you should do more Miles Morales. And I'm like, I don't think my imagination works for Miles right now. <laughs> like, that was like pulling teeth doing that because I really wanted it to, to honor what Bendis had done before and to to remain in the spirit of the character, right? And it was a lot of like, ooh, I, I got to do this, do that, do that. It's not, I mean, maybe at some point, you know, I, I will... Uh, kind of have more of like an an all audiences or like kind of younger skewing kind of uh, imagination wake up in me. But like right now, I'm sort of working through books, and every project is a bit of a personal exorcism. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> they tend to carry a, a, a certain weight. You know, I tend to you know drop maybe one or two cubes in the whiskey, but I don't put any soda in there, and and the whiskey is strong. Um, That's all right. But you know, all credit to Marvel for for facilitating, and also Juan Ferreira, you know, doing he's doing all the art. Like he's it's doing gorgeous, pencils, man. Inks and the colors. He's even doing the automatopoeia uh, in a lot of the books. So he's making because you know I, I, I we spoke early on when we were starting a book. I'm like, I love Dark Knight Returns. I love the the force of Frank Miller's work. You know, Electro Assassin, the Billson Cabbage Frank Miller book. Hundred percent. I read it all the time because it it really opened my mind to what could be possible to do, you know, in, in comics. And we talked about wanting to do something where he would turn the automatopoeia uh, into a design element. 
you know, and and play with color and give color meaning and and do these things. And and Juan's got a, a great mind. You know, he responds so well and so quickly to uh, that kind of stuff and brings so much of his voice, you know, to the book. There's a there's a lot of the story over the five issues that's told almost strictly visually, um, because I just know he can do it. Uh, that's great. And, and uh, I just kind of let him go and just go ahead and do this, you know. Um, uh, you know, and we, we engage Eric's spirituality a little bit. You know, how uh, how he's not from a Judeo-Christian background. He doesn't have a Abrahamic religion that he subscribes to. You know, he has sort of like the smoke and vapor of whatever the belief system of Wakanda is, but it's still kind of within him. And we deal with that a little bit. And I thought that would be an interesting place to go. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and how do his gods view him? Do they exist? Do they not exist? Is it in his mind? Is it not? Don't really know, right? But um, you know, are they just like a you know? Are we in like a Jung place where Bast, the mother goddess, is really his conscience speaking to him, or is it actually an entity outside of him that is imploring him to reconsider? We don't really know. But I, I, I thought it could be. Um, just an, an interesting experience, and hopefully a book that'll have some longevity after it's finished, that people will will read and kind of revisit and talk about a little bit, and um, and maybe it'll add something just uh, experientially to the world of Black Panther. I'm t- man, I'm telling you, see, if you're listening and you haven't picked up Killmonger, you're going to want to pick this up now. This is the same kind of stuff that Tom King was playing with with Vision, and and again, thankfully, it was a Marvel regime that said. Yeah, tell that story. That's okay. It doesn't have to hook in a civil war or whatever the main thrust is of, of uh, you know, whatever the event status quo is right now. Tell your story. And because this is a prequel, I think that makes it easier. And again, I, uh, you're right. It says uh, for uh, – it does say like parental, p- parental advisory on the cover as well it should, and that's okay. I was telling you off the air, my buddy who writes for the Wall Street Journal, Cam McWhorter, uh, his son is a very smart 14-year-old kid. And he's like, I was thinking about Killmonger. And I'm like, yes. I'm like, he, I go, and hey, I talked to him, had the father talk. And I'm like, you know, there's a little, there's a little, little sex in there, but it's, it's done tastefully. And he looked, he checked out the book. He flipped through. And he goes, no, this is okay. You know, and I, and I, I haven't had a chance to hear how the, how the kid felt about it. Actually, he was flying back to Atlanta today. But uh, no, I'm excited because the kid's a smart kid and he really does like good, edgy stuff. Well, and, I think- and, you know, so and sometimes not being a father, you know, I'm like, I don't want to sit, you know, give the kid the wrong book. But again, yeah, right. his dad, you know, the kids, a, the kids, a smart kid. And, you know, dude, this is the same thing that I've said before. I was nine when I read Jerry Conway's uh, Death of Gwen Stacy story. For sure. And it, yeah. You know, and it wasn't sex. It was like a, a, an extreme moment of violence. And it blew my mind in the best possible imaginative and creative way of stories can have consequences. And it's not always they lived happily ever after. Bad things can happen. And it didn't it didn't corrupt me in any way. It blew. Like I said, it blew my mind in a very cool, creative way of, wow, this stuff can really mean something. And I and I've felt that way ever since I read that story. Well, I you know, for me, I'm not I'm not a father myself. I'm not a parent. But I, I was a teacher for a little bit because I had to make ends meet. So I was a substitute teacher for a little while. And, and I used to work with, you know, the 12 year olds, 13 year olds, what have you. What I, what I don't want to do is show violence without consequence. Yep. Because I think that is when, when you're, when you're reinforcing the idea 
that there's no consequence to violence, I think that can be negative for any mind at any age. What what I try to do is present, you know, as it's a heightened reality, but it's still the stark reality of consequence. So there's moments in in Killmonger One where you know Eric dispatches with a with a fella in in the book, but you see like the kind of the the physical toll it takes mm-hmm. on him. You know, you see, you know, you see like a, a, a mental toll it takes on him. The adrenaline kind of running out of his system. You know, like it's it's. For me, it's just about making sure it's not propagandic. In my Batman detective run, I mean, there's some violence in there. I mean, I've got a woman Absolutely. that fire and, you know, but it's it's supposed to be horrifying and it's supposed to to leave that, that, that feeling with the reader because it's important in a book like Batman to make sure we all understand why we need Batman. Sure. You know? And, and uh, that's when I do superhero comics, that's what I think about is – making sure that the book explicitly demonstrates the necessity of the hero so that we understand why, you know, why he exists in Gotham and, and how he protects us. And we understand what happens when he fails, you know? So I, I trust the, the, the minds of readers a lot. And I think, you know, young people, you know, if they pick up my work um, and I think that they, uh, they get something that's honest and feels uh, true you know, to, to them and I, and, and can help kind of lead them around some of these emotions. I mean, part of Killmonger is a letter to anyone that feels themselves in the precipice of giving themselves over to anger. And, and I'm kind of demonstrating where that leads you. Right. And I'm being honest about it. There is some power in it. Uh, and you can accomplish some things that way, but there's also a price. And do you want to pay the price? Like, is it worth you? It were worth it to you. And for me, it wasn't, you know, when I was an angry kid and I had to let that go because just the price of anger was just too steep. Um, so yeah, so in a lot of ways I'm sort of writing to my younger self in my work because I know that, that, you know, none of us live in a bubble and we're all unique, but we're not separate. So there are plenty of other versions of the younger me that are out there that are encountering comics now as I did back then. And I'm sort of keeping them in mind when I work. I can't wait to hear uh, this kid's uh, reaction to uh, Killmonger. And, uh, you know, now I might I might also recommend American Carnage uh, to him as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, it's it's funny. The younger readers who've read American Carnage um, are less traumatized than the older <laughs> The younger readers are just like, oh, this is like a cool crime story, you know. I want to kind of dig this. This is interesting, and you know, that's the. But it's like it's the, it's the adults. It's like people in their forties who are like apoplectic about that book. <laughs> are they really? Are you getting grief? Um, you know what? It, it, here's the thing. Tell me. I, I have a very interesting relationship with people on social media. Uh while I'm explicitly liberal and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm liberal to the point where I'm antinomian in my belief system, honestly. Uh, but I'm also, I try to be like considerate and patient with people when they have differing points of view. And I have a really eclectic group of folks that interact with me on social media. I mean, I don't have a lot of time these days because I'm doing the writer's room in the day. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm on hiatus and I'm working and researching, I, I talk quite often. And I think I've built up um, some credit with people. So I haven't gotten a lot of pushback. I've gotten some people that disagreed with things said in the book. 
And that's fine. You know, I mean, you expect that in a book like American Carnage. It's about a guy going undercover into a white supremacist movement. So, yep. Yep. very Don. Yes. Donnie Brasco-esque going into a white supremacist group and a guy who, much like Black Klansman, can uh, or at least as opposed to Black Klansman, this is a guy who passes as white. Is this light, is a guy yeah, skinned enough who who passes for white. The, the protagonist can you know he he can pass for white, um, and and it's also set in contemporary California. It's set in Los Angeles, yeah. right? So you know like Black Klansman is period South, and there's a lot of period South uh, when they discuss these issues. But mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that happened now. In I wanted to do a story like this in a blue state. So, to sort of shatter some of the the misconceptions um, about where these ideologies live and breathe, right? Uh, so yeah, some people you know have been offended, but most of it is. We, unfortunately, we live in an age now where characters instantly become symbolic of anyone who looks like them, especially in comics. And I've had to tell people just because a character that looks like X says Y. <laughs> Doesn't mean I think everyone who looks like X believes Y, right? <laughs> well, that's and again, that's why I'm laughing because the idiocy. And forgive me, but you know, it's obviously, I, I just yeah, it's like my God, they're not necessarily talking about you. Maybe if you see yourself in that, that's the problem, not the story itself. But it's like, come on, man, Jesus. Even as something as benign as people who don't like the Big Bang Theory, well, I don't like the way nerds are pro- pro- you know projected that way, and I'm like. Well, I'm a nerd, and I don't see myself on that show. If you see yourself on that show, maybe that's you know your own problem with yourself, and it's like check yourself. It's not the story. I don't like know. If, if I'm watching Starsky <laughs> and Hutch, I don't worry about being Huggy Bear, right? Like I'm not Huggy Bear. It's fine, but it's it's an interesting phenomenon. So like a, a fella uh, you know tweeted at me the other day, and we have had plenty of fine conversations, and you know we're, I mean I don't know him personally, but we we talk online sometimes okay. at the time. And he was very irritated with me that the main, I guess, the antagonist of the book, a fellow named Wynn Morgan, who the candidate, uh, right? Isn't he like? Is he is he in office or is he running for office? He is gathering attention around his his political ideology, right? Okay. He has something of like a grassroots movement yeah. that hasn't yet sprouted into a candidacy or anything, but he's on the scene, right? And he kind of represents the kind of rise of fringe intellectualism. You know, that I see out there, you know, without making him a direct analogy to anyone. I mean, he's not this guy or that guy or this lady or that lady. He's okay. Yeah. But at some point he claims to be a libertarian or I think one of the characters says he claims to be a libertarian. So a a fellow that was libertarian uh, took great umbrage with that because I uh, I was equating libertarianism with white supremacy. And I told him, well, one, I didn't say that the character said that. (laughs) Two, I didn't say it was true. <laughs> right. Well, like exactly, man, because that is a tactic of some extremists to normalize their right. agenda. To, and and to, certainly libert- libertarianism is whatever – and it, it really helps with the actual definition of the idea itself that it's – you know, everyone's kind of on their own and therefore they can interpret liber- you know, that type of libertarianism as its own thing. And, it, and I think there are inconsistent – uh, slices of uh, libertarianism. That's my own perspective on it. And my my point to the fellow was, well, what you're really irritated with is a narcissistic sociopath co-opting <laughs> your political ideology for their own ends, which you should be Absolutely. because he's the bad guy. <laughs> right. Right. So, 
it's it's yeah but but i think because i don't i don't fly off the handle you know and and i have a firm belief that all energy returns to its source and and that's probably the basic tenet that uh i run a lot of my kind of social behavior on you know life behavior what have you 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 get you get back what you put out so because i'm not pointed or argumentative and I don't run ad hominem attacks on my Twitter feed or any of that stuff. I understand. Um, I think that people aren't quick to do that with me. So even when they're irritated with me, the worst I get is like, yeah, I don't really want to go on this trip with you, but I'll get outsiders when it comes out. Or I like Killmonger a lot. And, and that's, <laughs> I'll take it. You know, like sure, I, sure. I like Raging Bull. I love Goodfellas. Kundun, not my favorite movie. There you so, go. You know that's gonna that's gonna happen with 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 artists, right? Oh my like, God. I, I'm like that with Aaron Sorkin. I don't like everything. I, I think he's yeah. a very talented guy, but I don't like everything he writes. But I'm not gonna harangue him about it. Again, that's comic books, man. That's the thing. Every as as evidenced by this podcast, because here you are. But I mean, that's the thing. You know, everyone's very approachable. You know, you wouldn't think of like writing Aaron Sorkin going, yeah, you know, Studio Sixty, you're full of shit. I just want to tell you that, yeah, like, you, yeah, know, you know, you're like you're like Jim Zub, and I really I I credit you for having that ability of taking a negative comment and handling it as you do, and truly, and and doing it in a very easy, relaxed way of okay, we'll agree to disagree. It's not a big deal. This is where I'm coming from. All I can do is explain what I'm trying to do with the story, and if it's not your thing, no problem. See you later. Well, you know, <laughs> you when you're dealing with people through social media, especially. I have no idea what someone is going through. Sure. Me, right? I just don't know. I don't know what their day is like, what their week is like, what their year has been like. And, uh, you know, they could have just been in a bad mood because of something that happened completely outside of anything I've done. And it landed, you know, kind of on my Twitter feed. So I, I, I try to kind of pull people towards more civil conversation, you know, whenever possible. And by and large... That that works. I, I don't like fanning fanning the flames of division and 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 all of that. I don't think that's particularly useful. And and frankly, John, when I was looking at writers who I admired, I think I would have had a lesser experience with their work if I would have seen the writers move into pettiness. You know, I kind I wanted to to believe that the people that were writing the things that I that I read and enjoyed had somehow escaped the pettiness that I was dealing with every day. And yeah. had a different sort of point of view, and so I, I try to to get to kind of maintain that and and, and live that way. Um, and I look, I, I think it's just awesome that someone bought my book and is mad at me about it. Like that's incredible, right? Like like I'm not used to that yet. <laughs> I understand you elicited a re- they you elicited <laughs> yeah. a reaction in them through your work. No, I hear you. That, that, yeah, that that's is that's why. incredibly yeah. They noticed you. Eat what, yeah. whether, what, wherever they're coming from, they noticed your work. Absolutely, man. So I just have so much gratitude to be able <laughs> to experience that, that some random person that I've never spoken to before bought something of mine, read it, felt a thing, uh, decided that they had to come yell at me about it. <laughs> that's an incredible thing for like a kid from St. Louis, Missouri. You know, like that's amazing. So 
Uh, there you go, man. <laughs> I just I, I love everybody, man. Thank, thank everyone for participating. How are we getting along? And you're you're from Cardinal Country, and I'm from Cubs Country. I'm I'm very surprised right now. Oh, because I'm not much of a baseball fan. <laughs> okay, there you go. Oh, and you know, honestly, you're from you're from uh, the Spinks Brothers Country, so I have I have that much more. Uh, yeah, yeah, from a much, boxing standpoint, much more fight fan. Much hey, more. Well, you, hey, well, Brian, you know, I do you know I'm doing a boxing podcast as well. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I started it in September. Well, you know, I, I wrote for Ring Magazine and Boxing Illustrated for a few years. And yeah. then also broadcasting, uh, really, from 1990 till 2006, I was, you know, going to fights and, and, again, doing not only the magazine reports, but doing a lot of radio reporting as well. And, you know, as you know, boxing has just become, I think, interesting again. I mean, I kind of checked out for... Yeah, it's coming back, right? Like, I feel like Absolutely. boxing is having a resurgence. I feel no like question. people are getting more and more into it now. And and uh, uh, boxing is sort of. I mean, UFC kind of had taken over everything. Mixed martial, mixed yeah. martial arts taken over everything. Yeah. But I, I, I feel like the narratives in boxing are still kind of unmatched. Agreed. You know, and the 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 controlled chaos of mixed martial arts can get exhausting sometimes. And yeah, it's it's kind of everything blended together. I know Bert Sugar. My dear friend and uh, former publisher of Boxing Illustrated and Ring Magazine felt the same way. He's like, that's an invented sport. It's too, it's too much. And it's the disciplines and what you can't do in boxing and, and just the, the regiment, you know, kind of way that they have to fight and everything. That's its own controlled kind of chaos that you can appreciate more. I think it's incredibly dramatic. It can get incredibly dramatic. Just like, I mean, we're, we're talking about two weeks before, uh, after, that great heavyweight fight that Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury just had. And it wasn't a great fight, but the anticipation was there. And every round you were just, all right, now what's going to happen? And it really was, it, it, it was entertaining. I don't know how rewatchable it's going to be. I haven't rewatched it on Showtime yet, but I appreciated it as it unfolded because it really was a mystery in terms of what's going to happen next because you really didn't know. Well, there's, you know, I, I'm... I'm a terrible martial artist, but I but I am a martial artist, right? Okay. So um, I have some familiarity with MMA and how that works, but it very quickly it just turns into people doing things to each other on the mat that I don't really understand, but other people do, and then it's over, right? And boxing remains relatable the entire time. Yeah, we understand throwing, you know, your right hand and your left hand, right. Slugging, like punching, striking. Slugging, yes. punching, it's innate. Like, we get it. It's a part of our atavistic mind. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, I, you know, you can sort of fall into that a little easier. Sometimes UFC, UFC stuff can almost get esoteric in what they're doing, depending on who's fighting. Um, and then, like, the, the kind of the, the way that the boxing champion kind of holds the belt for a while and, and, and all of that. Um, it's like a gunslinger. You got to prove it yourself is. every time. It's like, are you still the champ? Are you still the best? And, and there's I, and always I, somebody gunning for you. I think that that Conor McGregor match, I think, did a great service <laughs> to like the sport of boxing. Right? It, yes, I, oh, dude. Literally, I felt the sport was on the line with that fight. Totally. Because if McGregor had won, it it really would have like boxing would have just driven been driven further into the netherworlds that it's been dwelling in. 
And um, now I'll say this, and I want to I want to know your perspective. And I, I appreciate this boxing tangent for a moment oh. because as as first of all, watching Conor McGregor prepare for the fight, and that they the only sparring they showed was that brief moment where he he knocked down Paulie Magliani, and I was really proud that Paulie like stepped up and said, "Look, I know this is hype for the fight. I understand that I was there for Conor to get better, and Conor's the focus. But I am a fighter. I have a reputation." Yeah, he caught me. He caught me with one punch. What you didn't see are the many times I knocked him down, and it really was McGregor stepping into Mayweather's sole discipline of boxing and punching. And even at forty, and it's the most flat-footed, no oh, yeah. legs Mayweather I ever saw. He was walking around like a guy picking up trash. He had no, there was no gallop to his movement. Totally. Nothing. He was totally flat-footed. Let McGregor punch himself out. And still had enough skill in his 40s. And lighter weight fighters age a lot faster than middleweights and heavyweights do. Yeah. And and still knock him out the way that he did. And, you know, thank God. Because, again, it's I really think it proved. It's like, look, MMA is great. But if you're really going to stick to one discipline and it's boxing, you better know how to punch and, and punch for 12 rounds. And that's not easy to do. And that's what I think makes boxing... Uh, again, from a pure punching standpoint, superior to MMA. Well, yeah, you know, and look, like there, if you do jujitsu to somebody in a street fight, yeah. you're probably going to jail, right? Like <laughs> that's yeah. that stuff is meant to kill people, right? That's not it isn't it's self defense, but it's self defense uh, like it like it said in a martial way. So, you know, uh, like throwing punches, if you're going to look, if you're going to be really great at a thing, I would still say be really great, be a really great boxer because uh, you're able to control the the situation in a way that's a lot less savage um, than kind of MMA applied in the street. Well, goes. You, were, you remember when you were younger, it was only legal in like a couple states. And in the 90s, when I was on sports radio. And I'd be talking boxing, and we'd open up and have a boxing segment. I'd get MMA fans calling in and going, how come you're not talking about MMA? I'm like, because it's illegal in 48 states. And they're like, well, you know, it's superior to boxing. I'm like, it's kind of brutal, man. And thankfully, people like Dana White and the others of the UFC, because they went to the uh, athletic commissions of all the states and said, okay, what do we do need to do to clean this up, air quotes, and make it more palatable for you to license this. And they're like, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. And they said yes to everything. And they found a way. And that's why MMA elevated from the Royce Gracie years, as great as those years were for diehard fans, but it, it became more of a sport. And I, and I do think that it's progressed as far as the way that it's practiced in the octagon. Um, I do think from a business standpoint, it's still a pretty tight monopoly, but uh, what are you going to do? And uh, that's that's for others to decide how to how to better, you know, regulate the sport. But but again, yeah, it's very interesting. And again, you'll notice as we're talking, Mayweather supposedly, you know, going to be fighting this exhibition in Japan, fighting right. a kickboxer, but they're boxing. They're not kickboxing. So all they're doing is punching again. And it's, you know, and Mayweather has pretty much said, no, I'm not going to fight mixed martial arts because he knows better. Because when the boxer does walk in and has to face the jiu-jitsu expert or the great grappler or whatever, it's it's never ended well. I have yet to see a boxer walk into MMA rules and succeed. Well, it's I tell you what, man, when when if you're standing up with somebody and they jump at your legs, 
that has to happen to you about 400 times before you stop freaking out. Like it's, <laughs> it's a weird thing, right? Like you, you, because <laughs> your your instant kind of feels like, oh my god, I have no idea what's happening, and you just kind of turtle up, and then they can just do their stuff. And, and look, you know, like yeah, like mixed martial artists are incredibly skilled and and very 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 dangerous. Um, but uh, for me, I just I think I just relate. I if I had to pick a great MMA fighter or a great boxing a boxing match, I would always pick the boxing match because. Yeah. Uh, one, you know, I, boxing is a sport. You know, it's not necessarily about pummeling the hell out of the other person until they they don't look like a person and look more like a vegetable, right? It's it's a little different, and there's there's a there's a skill and a finesse to it that I appreciate in in in, a, in an athletic sense. Um, and I I do like watching MMA stuff, and there's some fighters that I that I like more than others. Oh yeah, oh but, sure, uh, agreed. But yeah, I think it's um it's important, uh, and I'm I'm glad for the culture of sport that boxing is having the resurgence. I mean, I think the Creed movies honestly have a lot to do with it too, right? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know. Um, well, and again, and and you know, seriously, I want to get back to American Carnage. This is a good uh, promo for my boxing podcast, the Big Bout Podcast. Yeah, right on, right on. Part of the Word Balloon Network, and we'll we'll get to Creed two at the end of the conversation. But yeah, I, I thank you for uh, tolerating this for those of you who are like, all right, enough of the boxy talk. Can we get right, back right, to, we'll get back to the sorry, sorry, I was talking <laughs> fighting, and you know, we just put it all, we went on no, a tangent. Well, again, we're both fight fans, and I, and like I said, I'm glad to hear that because I wanted your opinion. I'm going to talk to Tom King about his Walmart uh, Superman series. Oh yeah, that, yeah. that revisited Galactic Boxer Superman. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, so, and I was thinking I should put that on uh, the Big Bout uh, po- podcast as well. So, yeah, and, and and I'm like, oh, you know, Tom and I should talk boxing on there. Brian, you and I are going to have to talk boxing on the Big Bout podcast if you're you've oh, the time for sure. I'd love to. that'd be great. Excellent. All right, so back to American Carnage. By the way, yeah. the artist Leandro Fernandez. I've been a fan of a long time. Oh yeah, and great. just like his work with Rucka on Queen and Country. I'm glad you guys have did, now. Did you ask for him, or did, were you put together? How did that happen? Well, so when Andy uh, Corey, who's my editor on that book over at mm-hmm. DC Vertigo, uh, you know, he had a list of of artists that he wanted me to take a look at, and I knew Landro's work from Queen and Country too because I'm a huge Queen and Country fan. Uh, Rucka's work has always been a, a big influence on me, so I, I yeah, I, the instinct for a book like American Carnage might initially be to kind of go in like a, a, a Mitch Jarrods sort of direction, right? Like okay. something that's um, not necessarily photorealistic, but it's, it's grounded uh, in, in a way in terms of its anatomy and how the characters are constructed and all that. I felt like the world of American Carnage is just too stark and ugly uh, to be that literal. And what I like about Leandro's work is he draws people and their drawings, but they still have the subtleties of people. Yep. And I'm like, that's what we need. Agreed. Because if if people get this book and they open it up and it looks like life drawing, then I think it just might be too much. I think it just might, you know, there there be no no uh, no easy way for people to make it palatable. So. Um, and it's rare that you can find someone that can stylize but also express subtlety like he can. Um, and the great thing about working with uh, uh, Leandro is he thinks through you know, everything he's doing. I've been really lucky, like with Juan on Killmonger and, and, and you know, and Leandro, um, with, uh, you know, with Miguel and Felipe on Detective. 
I've, I've, you know, Dexter Soy, you know, he's working on Outsiders with me. That's not out yet, but it's coming out. Okay, I was wondering who's going to do Outsiders, <coughs> but okay, very cool. Whoop. Very thoughtful artists that all have uh, different styles, but they all are very thoughtful about what they do. And, and they respond to the script and they add to the script in ways that I could never do, no matter how many drafts I've, I've written. Uh, uh, and uh, so Leo's work on, uh, on American Carnage is is amazing. I mean, I just saw like a page today, and it's just like a page of gentle character interaction. But it doesn't really need words. Like I could just take the words away, and I think it would still have the same meaning. Um, and it's like having a great director. You know, I, I guess it's like having a uh, Kerry Fukunaga. You know, directing your scripts for <laughs> True Detective, right? Like you you can be Nick Pizzolatto, and you can. You know, you can, you know, time is a flat circle. You can write all that stuff as much as you want, but you need a director who can come in and visualize that and kind of give it the gravitas and the weight uh, that you want it, want it to have. And, and as the, as the book goes on, we bring more of that Michael Mann kind of feeling and bring up Michael Mann again, we bring more of that kind of LA crime feel kind of comes into the book and it goes to some unexpected places. Um, uh, I, I, I think so. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how people react and respond as the book continues. And Dean White is that your colorist? Yeah, and Dean is amazing because color yeah, has, is. you know, I, I, I think a lot about color. I think a lot about the psychological effect of color. Um, I, you know, I can't draw, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a photographer, but I can't, I can't draw. But um, I do think about what color means. You know, like I, you know, I read Joseph Albers uh, and and study that, and I and I think about how color can help augment or accelerate an experience, uh, you know, how it can have thematic meaning. And it does, and Dean's work does do that. You know, color has meaning. He uses color to represent certain things, and you can kind of track that um, you know, across the book. You know, I tell people that the last page of every issue is almost its own tarot card. Uh, Interesting. So, you know, as you get through, like, the first first uh, 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 five or six of those uh, books. And I think the first arc is six issues. Um, you know, it's like the last page tells it's, the last pages of each book to kind of tell their own story in a way. Um, and the story is also told in the color choices and all of that. There's, there's, there's layers uh, kind of going on in there. Um, and that's largely due to the collaborators I have, uh, you know, and Pat on letters is, is amazing. Um, so, yeah, we've just got a really good group. I've been very lucky with my collaborators uh, to have worked with people that are better at their craft than I am at mine, so they made me look better. Well, I would also say, too, and I've already had Ben Blacker on talking about Hex Wives, and uh, your book, uh, I, it's, it's really part of the Vertigo resurgence because you kind of represent that 100 bullets scalp kind of neighborhood and uh you know a, a border town and and hex wives have the magic thing going on and forgive me i forget uh the the creator that's doing the other the other vertigo book that's uh and i don't know if you know right now and i can't remember well zoe zoe and robbie uh, zoe quinn and robbie rodriguez have goddess mode that's on the way yeah okay Okay. Um, ben Blacker's Hex Wives, that's out there. Yes. Uh, Rob Sheridan, and I, I forgot the artist. He's got a book called High Level that's a really interesting. It's a beautifully illustrated book. Uh, it's like a sci-fi kind of sort of post-apocalyptic sort of thing with with some interesting kind of uh, uh, kind of sociological twists in there. 
Um, so that's that's coming along and and okay and yeah, John, like you know, when when Vertigo approached me about uh, doing something as part of the relaunch, I, I told him well, I don't really have a magical realism project right now. <laughs> I understand because <laughs> I assumed that that's what it you know I knew Sandman was coming and and I figured they wanted me to do you know like what if Beyonce was ISIS or something and. and you know, <laughs> And while that's interesting, to uh, by me, the way, I'd pay for that. <laughs> oh yeah, like I could, I, I could start from scratch on that. But that's a great dude. You got, all right, you got to talk to Jeff tomorrow. And yeah, right. That's a, make that, there's Beyonce's that DC Universe movie right there, man. Exactly. Make her ISIS. Just hook that right up, right? Um, and I was like, why? Well, you know, I'd, I'd be starting from scratch on that with the timeline they needed to kind of bring in like a pitch and all that. Like, well, I have this crime thing, um, and I, I told them it's. It, I, I guess it's my scalped hundred bullets influence sort of sort of work yeah and they, and they really responded to it because they didn't have a crime book uh as part of the lineup like a like a pure crime book sure um and uh i i think it's uh uh it's worked out well for uh the whole line i think to have this this touch of variety in there um and you know leandro's work it, it's different than um uh, Rizzo's Era. work, Eduardo Rizzo. Oh yeah, but, Rizzo in Hundred Bullets, sure. But you can see, like, just kind of like the feeling of it can be similar at times. Agreed. Um, oh, absolutely. No, that's a, you know I didn't even think of that, and and also Guerra as well on mm-hmm. scalped and everything. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing. No, and that's again, that's what made Vertigo great. It was fantasy, but also there was always the crime element as well. And I'll tell you, Ali Masters' Kitchen was fantastic. And that kind of came at a very low point, I think, in general for Vertigo, where maybe people weren't paying attention. But I saw it. Yeah, I do. And I I did know that. And I'm so glad because it it really is an excellent work. He's a great guy. I talk to him on social media all the time. Ali is is amazing. That's cool. Yeah, I had him on uh, both to talk about The Kitchen and also a Boom series that he was doing a couple years ago. And yeah, he's a, yeah he's a he's a Twitter buddy, absolutely. And and I'm I'm always like got my eye open in terms of what he's got coming next. But yeah, I was a huge huge fan of the kitchen. I thought that was just terrific. And I am it will make an amazing movie, much like Road to Perdition. You oh, know, it's like you know you're yeah. gonna see that and then you're gonna tell someone that doesn't know. Oh, by the way, that was based on a comic book. What really? <laughs> you know, I tell, I tell people that about uh, a history of violence. You know, people are like hundred percent. What are your favorite comic book movies? And I'll be like Dark Knight, you know, Donner Superman, A History of Violence. They're like, that wasn't based on a comic book. All right, let's take a break from our conversation with Brian Hill and tell you a little bit more about our sponsor today, of course, Aftershock Comics. It's Christmas season. I keep saying it, and I truly do mean it, because a lot of times we go to the store and we're going to buy something for a friend who we know is into comics, but we know his pull list or her pull list. What do you do if, you know, it's it's not, you know, something like that? Where do you go? You want to get him something? Aftershock is a great option because, as you know, they've got top creators. they uh, Mike Martz and Joe Pruitt, they've got a lot of friends in the comic book business, and when they went to work at Aftershock Comics, they were very smart, and they reached out to their very talented friends and acquaintances and said, come on board. What kind of ideas do you have? What aren't you able to do at DC and Marvel? Come do it here at Aftershock Comics. Clean slate, clean platform, new ideas, fresh ideas. And uh, they have intrigued a lot of my friends uh, that are doing some amazing work for them. Steve Orlando, Paul Jenkins, uh, certainly our friend Frank Thierry, 
uh, doing with Oleg Akunev, Pestilence, which is the uh, first series about uh, the Black Plague in the 14th century revealed to be the first zombie outbreak. Things like that. Uh, Monstro Mechanica from Paul Aller, a great book that I uh, really do appreciate, and I've got the trade, and I really enjoyed that. It was all about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and we all know how futuristic he was with his designs. Well, he comes up with you know, a wooden mechanical robot, Monstro Mechanica. Really interesting idea. Uh, there's things like Jimmy's Bastards, of course, from Garth Ennis and Russ Brown. Uh, we mentioned earlier Baby Teeth from Donny Cates and Gary Brown uh, covering the first 10 issues in the year one hardcover that's available now this month. And there's Witch Hammer, Cullen Bunn and Dalibor Talajek's first original graphic novel for Aftershock. That's coming in comic shops next Wednesday, the 19th. These creators came to Aftershock to tell their kind of stories with no rules, no forced continuity, just a new platform to tell fresh, great ideas. And this is where you can do your shopping and find a great gift for your friend who's a comic fan. And uh, this way, it's something outside of their polis. You know, you buy something like Pestilence from Frank Thierry and Oleg Akunov, and their first trade is available now. Second trade is coming out in January, so if they really like it, uh, they can immediately pounce in just a couple weeks and uh, get the next volume of Pestilence. Really great stuff. Interesting genres. Uh, there's, there's hero books. There are, there are sci-fi books. There are great World War, uh, war books from, uh, from people like Garth Ennis who know what they're doing. Uh, you can get a great art book. Jim Starlin's art book is now being put out through Aftershock, and uh, that is available as well. Don't take my word for it. In the weeks ahead, I'll be talking to more Aftershock creators about their books, but you don't have to wait. Go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AfterShockComics.com. All right, let's get back to our conversation now with Brian Edward Hill on Word Balloon. My favorite example of where movies are right now and what I think would have literally 20 years ago been like a summer hit all summer long was Two Guns, the oh, Boom yeah. series. And, you know, Stephen Grant, one of the finest publisher writers ever. And and yes, yeah, like and I love talking about that with Ross Ritchie of Boom, and it's like, not you know, and luckily it was enough of a hit, and certainly found its audience in DVD and cable afterwards. But I'm like, isn't that interesting? Because if this thing had come out in the late '90s, this would have been like the summer buddy cop movie that everybody wanted. You got two A list actors, great story, very funny, fun action, and everything. I'm like, you know, what the hell? And again, it shows where the movie-going audience is now as opposed to 20 years ago. Well, I, you know, I worked with Adam Siegel on, on another project who is the producer of Two Guns. Oh. And I was working with him uh, kind of right after, I think, the movie had come out. Um, and so we were talking about it, and, and Adam, you know, he was saying, you know, kind of the same thing you are. Just like, Adam really loves those, like, you know, Dick Donner, you know, Lethal Weapon movies. Totally, yes. Uh, like the Walter Hill movies. Yes. You know, and I, and I, do, yes, I yes. do too, yeah. And it's, I I think Two Guns, um, one, I'm glad that people are finding the movie and enjoying it and, and have continued to do it. That's the power of Denzel Washington and like Mark Wahlberg. Is 100%. People will see your movie, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, don't, worry, don't worry, people will yeah. see your movie, right? Um, but, but yeah, I think... Hollywood is figuring out how to do star vehicles because they forgot for about eight or nine years how to do it. And part of the problem is the budget ranges 
have gone really big and then really small, and the middle is gone. Yes. Isn't that so, interesting, Brian? Yes. Yeah, those projects that used to vehicle actors are gone now. So actors go from you know doing like a small movie or the TV show to suddenly being a superhero in a $200 million film. But they're the superhero. It's not necessarily a vehicle for them. And they haven't done the six or seven mid-range movies that, you know, Tom Cruise did before he turned into Tom Cruise, right? Like, they don't make cocktail anymore, right? Right. <laughs> That's right, though. You're right. They're You're under Yeah, you used to get, like, a steady stream of these pictures. Right. And they Vehicles. Would, they yes. Would get, they would build up, like, an actor's resonance in popular culture. So that when you you know you 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 blew them out into a bigger movie, um, there was a familiarity there. But now it's like well, we're going to put you in Thor, and then we're going to put you in Black Hat. But nobody wants to see Thor in Black Hat, <laughs> so that movie doesn't really work. And it's it's a weird thing. Hollywood's figuring it out. Um, uh, but I also think, and again, because you are you have a foot in this world with Titans and what's going on with streaming. You get things like the Kaczynski method on Netflix, yeah. and if people who – and I'm glad you know what I'm talking about. So for listeners who don't know, this is the Michael Douglas, Alan Arkin miniseries, Chuck Lorre, the guy behind Two and a Half Men, and uh, got everything from Dharma and Greg to Big Bang Theory and you know five or six other shows in between that I'm not thinking of, if not ten other shows that I'm not thinking of. But um, what would have been an indie film and probably found a nice – niche kind of you know midstream popular film audience now instead it's a netflix series and i'm wondering if the vehicle that used to show up in theaters now the place for vehicles and the platform for vehicles is streaming television because even before that it seemed like with shows like damages oh yeah and you know shows and the shield and shows like that 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 was the place where the star you know, feud right now, and I, I know they're probably doing another uh, storyline on FX with feud, but the Betty Davis, Joan Crawford uh, miniseries and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, so, you know, and you had uh, Susan Sarandon and um, uh, Jessica Lang. Wasn't it Jessica Lang? No. Yeah, I think it was Jessica Lang. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, but yeah, so that's where these stars, and that's why, like, Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas made a career of vehicles like Black Rain and. You know, right. uh, like Black Rain, like nobody remembers Black Rain. You know, like I love uh, Black Rain. Uh, great yeah. Yakuza, great Yakuza movie. If you haven't oh, seen it, oh, totally kids. great. Greg Allman <laughs> song. When all the rest are gone, <laughs> I'll be home. No, like, fantastic. Like, it's all. It's, it's a great, great thing. I, I think it was eighty nine, and like eighty nine was the year of the bat, so nobody remembers Black Rain. But, um, uh, but yeah, like I, Dark you're Blue, right. Dark Blue sat on the shelf for a couple of years. Absolutely. Um, uh, Kurt Russell's movie, yeah. great movie about a corrupt cop. Found it finally, they put it out. Kind of finds its audience again on cable after the fact. And yeah, that's because like the remaking, you know, they're already doing it. You know, you got the new MacGyver, you got the new uh, Magnum, and it's so funny. I, a friend of mine and I were talking about the new Magnum, and he was a hardcore fan of. Uh, you know, the Selleck show. And he's like, I- I'm just not getting into it. It's like, yeah, because it was Selleck. It was a vehicle for Selleck. Because you can't recreate Tom Selleck. Right? Absolutely. Like it's, yes. It's just, it's a, it's a unique thing. And Ving Rames can't be Kojak. We love Ving Rames. Right. But not it, as Kojak. That was not, wrong. He's not telling, those things were so keyed in <laughs> to, the, the, the thing they say in television is the, the, the first season, 
uh, the actors work for you. The second season, you work together. The third season and going on, you work for the actors, right? I'm and- hearing that. <laughs> I'm hearing that about several shows where I know some behind-the-scenes people and stuff. So, yeah, I get that. No, and it's okay. I mean, that's as it should be. It's all right. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, the star's the quarterback, as it was told to me years ago. So I get it. If audiences are, are connecting with you know uh, this actor in this performance, then, yeah, you just want to kind of promote that and, and see where you – where you can take that. But, but yeah, I do think that streaming is, well, well, we're in this kind of great period for content creators because there is a, a, it's a, I want, it's a, it's a warm war. You know, I don't want to say it's a hot war. I don't want to say it's a cold war. It's a warm war between streaming platforms. Uh, so everyone needs content because everyone's trying to like get there and get their audiences and, and do the whole thing. Like Netflix is shifting it around and they want to, kind of build their whole thing around stuff that they own so that they're making like more of the revenue off of that and sure. and Titans is on the DC streaming service and you know Star Wars is going to be on something that's you know so there's just a lot of platforms and, and all those platforms are going to need content and I think they're going to need cost efficient content so what would normally have been you know like an indie film or a low budgeted genre film I think you're going to see more of those on streaming services, either as one-off movies to kind of test the waters for a concept or, uh, as series, you know, um, and to see like how they go. And, and I'm, and I don't, you know, I don't know anything, but I think it'd be really interesting to, you know, as Disney and, and DC start doing their things, like almost like mirroring what DC comics does in animation in the streaming space, how they'll, make like Constantine city of demons as an animated feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, Oh, you could probably just do like a streaming movie and see if that takes, you know? Um, so yeah. it's technology has a lot to do with the art of film. And it's easy to forget that because it's easy to think that what you experience is what it always has been and what it forever will be. So, uh, every generation kind of remembers their experience with motion pictures as the way motion pictures were when it, they were doing the things right. But it's all different now. You know, I mean, now you have so much access to so much content. The relationship of the viewer to content is completely different than when I was growing up. 100%. Uh, uh, Jesus, I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a, about a generation ahead of you and stuff and feel the same way. And and yeah, it's 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 very very interesting. And um, yeah, I, again, what what people were willing to go to the theater when we were younger is different than what's happening now. And like you said, the studios are figuring it out or trying to. I loved, and I don't know if we talked about this in our last conversation, but certainly this summer when Jodie Foster was kind of frustrated with where oh, yeah. f- films are right now, and it's like Jodie. It, fine, you can't change the, the, the tides and the waves that are crashing on the shore. What you can do is ride them and, like, okay, go to Netflix and, and make your passion project there or Amazon or any of these other streaming places because I think you can do it. And, again, as evidenced by the Michael Douglas Alan Arkin series because it's a great story. It's an eight-part story. It It absolutely plays well. Everyone is, you know, doing what they would be doing on a big screen. And it totally works on Netflix, and it was it was fantastic. And uh, Ms., Mrs. Maisel is on its second season in Amazon. And you know, I'm a massive comedy nerd, sure. so I love the idea of setting you know d- exploring stand up in the 50s in the Lenny Bruce era. 
And obviously, it was that much harder for a woman to break through and work blue. And it's a great story. It's fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm midway through the second season. And it's like, yeah, this is where that stuff can live. And that's where I think mid-range Hollywood. Oh, you know, we're talking about budgets for indie movies and stuff. And, yeah, you know something? Sorry, Jody. Maybe you can't make $20 million a movie anymore. The, the, the numbers may not be there to support that. Is it okay? Can you do it for $5 million and do it on Netflix or Amazon? I don't, I'm shrugging. I'm like, you know, is it that big of a difference? Well, you know, uh, I, I, <laughs> I try to look at these things kind of, you know, what would Orson Welles do? What would Stanley Kubrick do, right? So we, so we tend to look – They at, would be thrilled, and especially Orson Welles would be thrilled in this environment, don't you think? We tend to look at people like Welles and Kubrick based on the work that they've done, and we put them on the shelf as purists of form, that they would be dogmatic about form. But that's not true at all. Kubrick would make something on Instagram. Exactly. So we'd look at that and be like, okay, what is the most interesting thing I can do with this format? Yeah. Right? Like, how can I make that work? Wells would be all over that. Like, what can I do Absolutely. with this? Did you see the did you see the documentary? And yeah. have you seen I have you know, you see, I'm saving for people again, for people who don't know, Wells' last film, The Other Side of the Wind, was tied up in legal legal uh knots for decades. And they finally untangled it, and they're finally released it. It's on Netflix, and there's also a supporting documentary called "They'll, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," and it's all about that period when he was making his fi- what would be his final film, and it's fascinating. And I've only seen the documentary. I'm saving the movie for other movie buffs to watch with me because it's also you know it's going to be. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, the whole thing, just the clips that are in the documentary. You know it's going to be one of those experimental 70s kind of fever dream sort of movies, a lot of stream of consciousness. I know there's a movie within the movie. So I want to be in the right group of people, and I don't want to just spoil it and watch it by myself. I kind of want to share it, and then let's talk about it afterwards. So I, I, need to be in, I need to be in L.A. with you guys so that I could watch it with you or Fialkoff or somebody like that that can, yeah, you like, know. Yeah, <laughs> like cinema nerds, right? Exactly, but, man. But, exactly. Know, I, I, it's... It's really easy to get entrenched, and I try to to step outside of that by just sort of thinking about, like, you know, Jean-Luc Godard or Francois Truffaut, thinking sure. about French New Wave. And, you know, we can look at Breathless now, and it makes complete sense to us because we've grown up on all the films that Breathless influenced. Yes, so exactly. jump cuts and handheld camera work and <laughs> sort of expressionistic scene construction and all of that makes perfect sense to us but for people that were that the most radical thing they'd seen to date was roman holiday watching <laughs> breathless was like well this is an affront to all things cinema right um but you know the, those 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 guys they they wanted to, to to turn the form over and see what they could find inside of it and, and do what they can and so i mean i i understand where where uh foster's coming from but I think a, a true artist, not that she's not a true artist, I won't say that, um, but I think that being an artist continues to reward when you can make yourself fluid, when when you can adapt to the changing technology, to the changing culture and climate, yep. and take advantage of things. And right. while, while there are certainly things that you used to be able to do that are more difficult to do now – there are also things you can do now that were impossible before. Agreed. And and I, I try to kind of turn my mind towards towards those things. And while I think the 
the pageantry of cinema might have been reduced a bit uh, because of the accessibility of content and the way people view the theatrical experience and, frankly, the quality of home viewing now is so high. Oh, my God, Um, yes. That's changed things. But there's also a, a deeper intimacy with filmmaking than you've ever had before. Because you can carry them in your pocket. You can watch them on your phone. Hell, you can probably watch them on your smartwatch now if you try. So there's there's a lot to be done. You know, I was looking at Instagram today and they have like video content. And I was thinking to myself, what can I do with this? You know, like what kind of interesting thing could I do here with this? So, so yeah, like I am, you know, I'm still, I, I, look, my, my, my soul is punk rock, John. I, I am. <laughs> That's- you know, I'm still that dude, right? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm that guy who's gonna, you know, play the thing too loud, play the instruments wrong, and see where we can go. So the chaos magician in me is always excited at these new formats. But I can understand how, for people that had a very specific understanding with cinema and a place in cinema, uh, and a kind of method that uh, they they were able to um, you know apply and get corporate support, find less support for that methodology. I understand the frustration. Um, but you know you have to either get destroyed by the the future or you can ride the wave of it, but you can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, ad- adapt <laughs> you know, you, you adapt and survive, right? Like, right, adapt or, di- or die. Adapt yeah. or die. And and again, and another person like that is Coppola, and it surprises me because Coppola came from that guerrilla filmmaking world. Oh, that's a, it's, world. It's, a, it's crazy. He's, yeah, it's crazy for Francis Ford Coppola to to talk about the preservation of a whatever when Coppola was, like, shattering these things. Right. But it's all perception. It's all how... Well, and again, and after after being successful, he he kind of became... He went from being the radical to part of the establishment. And like you say, he's that because I'm sure you saw those same quotes. He's like, you know, movies are carnival rides now. I, I don't understand today's thing. And it's like, dude, then go to, again, go to Amazon, go to Netflix. I'm sure they would love your creativity. Hell, before Woody Allen got swept in the Me Too... Uh, controversies and all that stuff got dug up again. Amazon was very happy to open its doors to him and say, make what you want. Well, we and- are here for you. Here are your resources. Make what you want. And we got Wonder Wheel and we got uh, uh, Crisis in Six Parts and things and with, with very degrees of success. Um, and, and again, I, I, I admit to being fascinated by Woody Allen, the filmmaker. I'm very sorry about the uh, terrible things that are, you know, uh, going on in his personal life and everything, and I I, I won't judge that, uh, and I can appreciate people who won't refuse to watch his movies because of that stuff. That said, again, um, he met, he prior to the scandals, he found a, you know he knew to okay, well I can make my stuff here, and it still works, and I can't believe that Coppola can't figure that out. Well, it's that 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 argument has been with cinema the entire time. I mean the the. The, the first notable theatrical experience was a train coming towards the screen and people ran away because they thought the train <laughs> was going to hit them, right? Like, yeah. like, cinema did not start with Italian neorealist works. Like, <laughs> that's not how it started. Like, it started as spectacle. And, Absolutely. And spectacle has always walked with cinema. Um, you know, and so now, yes, we're at a time when, you know, 
most of the things that studios are supporting are spectacle experiences, and that's a little different than it has been before. But I also believe that things things do get cyclical in a way. And, Agreed. Agreed. Uh, you know, uh, like we're, we're essentially doing a radio program. Right. right. Like of that's what's we happening. We have, of course we are. That's why I started podcasting. I'm doing my kind of radio show. We have Go fiber on. optics. We have a, an Earth surrounded by satellites. We're, we, you know, we're talking to each other through computers that can be as small as a phone, what have you. But the result is basically radio, right? Yep. So there, you know, there's gonna, there's gonna be a, a way that happens again. What Coppola is, is. Is is missing, you know what he kind of what he's grieving isn't lost. It's just shifting and transforming and taking on another right. form. And there's a there's a young Francis Coppola out there who's making Rumblefish, and maybe right. <laughs> and maybe it's on YouTube right now. And maybe that's why Francis hasn't seen it because he doesn't go to YouTube to watch things. But some kid somewhere made like an 89 minute thing, pure from the heart, shot on his cell phone or her cell phone. Put it up on YouTube, and I haven't heard of it. You haven't heard of it, John. Francis hasn't heard of it. But there's like three million kids who've watched it, and it just speaks absolutely to them. And from that piece, Matt Dillon will come, right? That's like, true. Yeah, it's it's there. It's there, and and it it, it will you know it, it'll it'll be found again. So um, uh, I just yeah, you just kind of have to go go with things. I mean, we had like one of the biggest successes of the year was a Halloween film. So, like, who knows where we're going, right? <laughs> no, I'm with you. Yeah, you're right, man. No, you know, it's like, true. Like, like, think about, like, Creed is what? Like, Rocky 8? <laughs> it is Rocky 8. 100% it is. Absolutely. Creed 2 is Rocky 8. Like, because, like, you know, I think I was spoken to before we started doing the podcast. So, I, you know, I wrote this Dolph Lunger movie when I was, like, 22 or something called The Russian Specialist. And Dolph directed it. I wrote it. I got to hang out with Dolph for, like, a couple months. It was a great experience. He's a great guy. Very and cool. It, I'm so happy to see like Dolph right back in the middle of things, you know. And Agreed. I was, when I was watching Creed Two, I'm like, this is remarkable. Like watching young people are having an experience with this, and they're talking about, well, now I have to go back and watch that old one. <laughs> and, That's true, right? And and, and, and so it's it. There. Hey, wait till wait till they get to the robot. <laughs> wait till they get to the robot. I was waiting for the poly robot to show up. And was a little disappointed, you know. If I if I have a conversation with Michael Jordan, I'm going to be like, "Man, what, what happened to the Polly Robot?" We For real, man. He should have been he should have been checking coats at Rocky's Restaurant or something like that. Yeah, please. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Happy birthday, Polly. Um, star filters and the whole thing, man. God bless oh my god. But but yeah, like um, you know, no, Dolph was Dolph was amazing in, in Creed too. He was oh. it, that whole sub subplot was so fantastic and. Oh, you know, you've been waiting for this Rocky and Drago conversation for literally 35 years, and it finally happens. Well, and it was, and it absolutely—I mean, I don't want—I mean, because it's—it's been out for a couple weeks. I don't mind yeah, talking I don't, about the movie. Yeah, yeah, well, we like, won't spoil it, won't but, spoil it, is, it, but, it, it but it pays off. It pays off. It's because it, it's interesting, you know. You didn't, you know, like you because obviously there is elements of Max Schmeling with with Ivan sure. Drago, hundred percent. Clearly, yes. that was on Stallone's mind. Uh, um, when when he was doing it, and uh, you know, as I was I was going there wondering how he was going to sort of approach that, and because you know, like the Max and Joe story is a really fascinating story. 
I know um, it well. My buddy Bert Sugar uh, wrote, uh, helped. If he didn't write the screenplay for the film Max and Joe, he yeah. was definitely uh, a creative consultant and was very proud of his participation. It's a good if, – if people haven't seen it, it pops up on Encore every now and then. And if you don't know, obviously Max Schmeling – was the German world heavyweight champion. It was during the time of Hitler. Mm-hmm. He himself was not a Nazi, ha- kind of had no choice but to be used as this like Nazi kind of idol. Mm-hmm. And really, I think in his post-war you know, years, showed his true mettle, really stayed a friend with Joe Lewis after Joe beat him and you know, crushed him in the rematch. Totally. And, you know, really was like, I, th- I think at least, I don't know your point of view, but a real, you know, like a decent guy. And, and uh, you know, it became a very big – he was an executive at Coca-Cola. But, like, really, like, you know, when, when Joe was in his tough years, uh, Joe Lewis, Max Max Schmeling kind of had his back. And certainly when he passed away, Max was one of the guys saying, this guy deserves a real, you know, national tribute. And he's buried at Arlington. I've seen Joe Lewis's grave. And, you know, it's it's I, I really think that, yeah, Schmeling kind of, like I said, I think was – misunderstood understandably why during the period but it was a complicated relationship and he certainly wasn't a you know a fan of hitler and what was happening in germany well you know whether you're talking like kind of superheroes or sports figures and or or what have you there are certain there's certain relationships that form because your adversary is really the only person that can understand you right like and yes and there's a unique relationship there uh uh, and that's that. That's like a kind of a really interesting aspect of warrior stories, whether they're like sports warriors or or soldiers, or I mean, you know, we we've, we've all heard the story about like World War One, how they all declared a ceasefire around Christmas and gave each other Christmas gifts. Yep, because they they all wanted to have Christmas, and yeah. so they had to figure out how to do it, and that's how they did it. And they'd go back to you know turning each other into hamburger. Uh, not so long after that, right. but you know the it, it's, I experienced something of the same thing when I was researching American Carnage. Um, there's something that happens when you sit in front of a human being, and you're you're open and you're honest with that person. The whatever the dogma is, whatever you know the the uh, the programming is, it kind of falls away because our instinct is to connect. That's what we do as, as, as creatures. We, we have an instinct for genuine connection. Now, now because of social media and all of that, we can get distant from that with a bunch of really shallow interactions. True. And we're always worst in our shallow, you know, in our, in our, in our shallow interactions. But what I would recognize is if I'm just sitting there and talking to someone and they got a shaved head and they got spider webs and 88s and lightning bolts and what have you, uh, and they've got all their dogma, their pamphlet stuff, whatever they're doing, um, Eventually, if I didn't respond to the anger and the aggression and the kind of the triggering stuff that they would try to do, people just start talking to you about what they feel. And when you listen to someone talking about what they feel, it's really hard for them to hate you. Now, I'm not saying that I changed anyone or that, you know, any, any conversation I had with uh, a white supremacist, you know, you know, they didn't suddenly, you know, go out and start watching Will Smith movies. But... Right. Uh, I, it just it showed me, you know, kind of what humanity is 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 really about, and and those are the things, those are the moments that I remember, you know, when I think about like sports stories or, or heroic myth- mythological narratives and all that. I think about, you know, someone having to give Ali a fight because he needed a fight, and someone understanding that, you know, you came out of prison, you need a fight, I'm going to give you a fight, 
right? Um, and and the just the knowledge of what the adversary goes through because you might go through it too. And and those are those are the things that uh, that uh, you know kind of stay in your heart and stay in your mind, right? So um, uh, there's just a lot there to explore uh, and it, learn from. It, in the same tone as American Carnage, do you remember the Deborah Winger Tom Berenger film Betrayed? Oh yeah, the Costa Robbins film. I, I I mentioned it on um, Twitter because that film terrified me as a kid. I understand. You know, like because I think I'd seen Tom Berenger in something else where I was supposed to like him, and I did. Oh yeah, he was he was a yeah he was kind of like I think a lot of people thought of him, and it's crazy now because he's sadly looks more like Dick Cheney than the comparison I'm about to make. But there was a time where Tom Berenger really looked like a young Paul Newman again. And was a romantic lead, and you know certainly in the Big Chill, he kind of has a Tom Selleck look sure. about him and stuff, and plays kind of a Tom Selleck-y kind of actor that's in a Magnum sort of show. Someone so, to no, watch he was very, me, like shoot to kill, right? Yes, like, and of course Major League, Major League. I think very, you know what? I think that might have been it. I think I think Betrayed came out after Major League. So I, I think you're right around the same time. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I had the kind of the, the, this friendly idea of Tom Berenger, and so when I watched Betrayed, because I was I I grew up on HBO, right? Uh, sure, which says sure. A lot about why my and mind was, is in the way it is. <laughs> and it was it was kind of the Tom Berenger network because they used to play the hell out of all those movies. Oh man, yeah, like you know, I was watching Dream On way before I should be watching Dream On, right? Oh, I love Dream On. Brian Brian ben, ben, ben. Ben. God bless Brian Benben, wherever you are. So <laughs> yeah, like and and. And and I was like I don't know like twelve or thirteen or something, and when you're when you're like thirteen and you know you're like you're like a straight kid growing up in St. Louis, you Deborah Winger speaks to you in a way you're not really ready for, right? <laughs> you're you're I, like I, I believe it. I'm kind of into her, but she also looks like a school teacher, and I don't quite know how to feel about it. And, you know, you're because you don't have like a nuanced understanding of like crushes, so you have like Jessica Rabbit. Style, so you get that right. But I'm like with the, Deborah Winger, like, I'm really into her, and she kind of looks like the next door neighbor, and well, yeah, whatever. exactly, girl next door. No, tough, tough girl next door. Like, yeah. with, you know, but like, but a, but a heart of gold, absolutely. Like like a movie like Betrayed will have you trying to date Deborah Winger all the way through college, right? It'll just you you won't realize <laughs> that every girlfriend looks like Deborah Winger because you saw Betrayed when you were twelve. Um, and again, and Tom Berenger playing this white supremacist right. that that seems to be, as you just said, someone that you can relate to one on one. Maybe he isn't a bad guy. Maybe he can change. Maybe I'm wrong because there's again, she's undercover dealing with this white supremacist group. And uh, and yeah, it's like you, you sympathize with the bad guy. And it's like, oh, maybe maybe she will be able to turn him. And it's that's kind of the question of the movie and stuff. And what does she do? I mean, should she fall for the, you know, uh, fall for this good-looking guy that she seems to be connecting with in non-political ways or non-terrible racial ways? And and then instead, no, it's the, you know, or is he really a monster no matter what? It's very interesting and it's 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 really it's a, it's a very nuanced movie. I I don't know how it will play today. Oh, I, because you know, because I, we, I, are so, well, we are so oh well, Lord have mercy if that movie came out today it would be a see that's yeah. the thing John like I'm not you know I'm only 41 so I'm not the oldest guy in the world but I've been through a couple cultural cycles right I'm with you and sometimes I'm looking at people and I'm like y'all realize what I grew up on right like like this thing that 
that that is like a Leviathan. Like like the, the whatever movie is the latest Lovecraftian horror that has to be like banished before it drives us all mad. <laughs> I'm like, I saw the uncut RoboCop when I was 16. <laughs> there <laughs> like, you go, man. You know, like, things were, like, can you, like, betray, Betrayed might work today because it's so pointed and dramatic and all of that. You know what would get you run out of Hollywood? 48 hours. You can't make 48 hours now. Like, if you made that now, man, I think everyone would pick at you from every side. I'm gonna have to rewatch it. I mean, I know what you mean in certain scenes, certainly when he when he's in the white bar and then yeah, would you like a black Russian and all you know? Like it's, and it gets- it's really like Nolte's character, his relationship to Eddie Murphy's character, how Nolte is probably still a bigot at the end of the movie, but just maybe not towards Reggie Hammond. <laughs> yeah, you're you're one of the good ones, Rich. Right? Like you, you you get to be one of the. You went, well, I guess I like you. Okay, so <laughs> you're like. Hey, like man. <laughs> you know, so like I don't that is is interesting. It's, it's rough because my wife, um, my wife hasn't seen a lot of those pictures from that era. So okay. she and I will go on like a late seventies movie kick or eighties movie kick, and she'll watch something and be kind of like, "Whoa, they would just do that in a Hollywood movie, huh?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it would just be in a movie. It wouldn't even be a big deal. It's just in the movie." Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know the Rocky movies. God, I just read a great essay, and I, I, I wish I could remember which website it was. Probably Slate. I believe it was Slate, talking about how the Creed films really redeem a lot of the ugly racial tones in the early Rocky movies. And and some of the stuff I remembered, some of the stuff I had completely forgotten. The the bartender and Rocky are watching Apollo, and oh, yeah. Apollo's saying all the right things. Stay in school. Don't be a stinker. Be a thinker. And all that stuff. And, you know, the bartender totally, like, comes out with a racial epitaph, and it's like, I didn't even remember that. Holy shit. And thankfully, Rocky, at the very least, is like, what are you talking about? This guy, like, put his ass on the line, and he, you know, and he made something of himself. What have you done with your life? But he doesn't say, hey, don't talk like that or whatever. He doesn't correct the guy or anything because, sadly, it was the early 70s, all in the family world and stuff like that. That shit just flew. And sadly, you know, and a lot of times it was out there to show, like in the case of Archie Bunker, that it's inappropriate behavior. But just as many people cheered as as were shocked and appreciated what Norman Lear and company were trying to do with Archie. Well, yeah. And and I I'm I always look at like what would seem to be like the intent of the work rather than like a moment that might bristle me the wrong way. Right. And, um, you know, I'm less I'm really hard to offend. John, it takes a lot to offend me. Like, okay. you, you, you'd have to like say some, something about my actual mother, and not even like a yo mama because that's <laughs> vague. Like, you, you'd, you'd have to hit me with like specifics, right, to like really get me. <laughs> okay. So, so, and I do understand the reaction that people have, but for for me, that made Rocky feel more real. And I hear you. Yeah. It, it also made the relationship between Rocky and Apollo feel more real because you knew where it had to come from. And, you know, although Clubber Lang is a cartoon of a thing, the the interesting thing is Rocky three with its weird like black exploitation aspects mm-hmm. also kind of has perspective from like Apollo and Apollo's world and all of that. And you True. know, yes, it's there's, there's, there's something, you know, there, there's something authentic about it, even if it's rough around the edges and it can kind of take us the wrong way. And I don't know about this scene and that scene. Um, 
but I still sort of appreciate it because in, in a holistic way, the the heart is kind of always in the the right place. You know, I agree. And yeah, that's, yeah. That's you know that's that's what matters um, uh, to me. I mean, I was just really glad that I always had I had a bad taste in my mouth, really just from how the Apollo Creed story sort of just wound up after four, right? Like, totally. It's like, hmm, I, you know, it, it because it, 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 it seemed like a, there was a point when, like, for a while, Rocky was influencing everything Stallone was doing, and everything was like a permutation of Rocky, in a way. Where sure. it was like authentic, from the streets, doing the thing, you know, movies like Fist, you know, like yes, things over like the that. Top, over the, the rest, top, the arm right? wrestling movie. Like even like a picture like Nighthawks, right? Like by like, the way, I I love Nighthawks. It's a terrible, oh, straight up violent oh, cop movie, but Wolfgar, I love it. Right? Like, exactly, Rucker Hauer, man. I do a Nighthawks sequel. Call me Stallone. So, <laughs> you know, like it was still sort of based in that. Like I'm gonna, I'm, I sort of want to be Scorsese, or I'm in like a Scorsese kind of mode. Then when Rambo hit, not First Blood, because First Blood is is a film. It's an amazing film. Rambo is exactly a where you're going, right? Yep. Like, like Rambo is is like if the Simpsons were to do a sequel to First Blood as like something Homer was going to watch. <laughs> yeah, that's Rainier what Wolf Rambo Castle. First Blood Part Two is, right? <laughs> and I love it because it's insane. But after Rambo First Blood Part Two, Rambo took over Stallone's voice. So Rocky Four is the post Rambo Rocky. Like when it's that. it's just it's it's rendered as an action film, and in an action film, the partner gets killed in the beginning. <laughs> That's so, right. That's right. So it got kind of infected with action movie ethics, even totally. though and because like Drago's basically a cyborg, it's an interesting picture. Oh yeah. Oh no, I, I and I agree. And no, they did. They got very cartoony. Thank God they righted the ship. I think first starting with Rocky Balboa. Oh yeah, and and, 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 and really the two Creed movies. Uh, they're uh, truly Rocky's trajectory as a character because really things really disintegrated by Rocky Five, and then I think he, everybody realized what went wrong. Like, well, Rocky Rocky like, Balboa has a lot of dignity to it. Like my haircut and my fashion sense, Rocky <laughs> Five was a victim of the nineties. <laughs> it was a weird time. It was it was a weird time. <laughs> I know, I know. So, yeah, uh, like, what, what you got to do? <laughs> yeah, I was, and I was in the front row seat of every one of those. Yeah, games. we were all there. You know, we were all there. We, <laughs> we, Tommy the Machine Gun. That was a whole thing. Tommy Morrison. Yeah. That was a whole thing. Um, you know, I got to. I actually, uh, it's funny. I was telling another friend today. No lie. When when Morrison fought Foreman, they came, their press tour came through town, and I got to spend time not only interviewing them on uh, on the record, but also. I've had downtime with Foreman a million times, and he's a fascinating man, and I really am thrilled that I got to interview him as many times as I did. But it was the one time I really got to talk to Tommy Morrison on and off the record, and we were the same age, and I, I spent like downtime with him, and I'm like, this has got to be a little overwhelming. He's like, it's really overwhelming. And this is years after Rocky yeah. five, and after he had already had a couple losses, so he wasn't an undefeated contender or anything. He was really kind of coming back against George. Right. And... um and I'm like, you know, like, how are you handling it? And he goes, it's tough at times. And we really had this real conversation for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, well, you know, do you have friends that you can talk to that? He's like, oh, yeah, back in Oklahoma and everything. And he goes, you know, they, they stay with me and they travel with me. I'm like, 
Well, Jesus, man, I, I'm like, good luck. I'm like, I'm sure this is a lot of pressure, and you know, I'm like, you're a talented guy. I hope, uh, I hope everything works out. And it's gotta be unfortunately, so it didn't. But it was really sad. I really felt bad for the guy. It's got to be so hard when you're when you're a real athlete, you're a talented athlete, um, and then you show up in a movie, which is a great opportunity, but then a whole like you know, millions of people now know you that didn't know you before, but they know you as the guy in the movie. And that can kind of tarnish your reputation as an athlete. And now when you perform as an athlete, it can feel a bit like a stunt. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and you don't think about those things when the opportunity to be in like a Rocky picture shows up and, and you want to go ahead and take it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all like incredibly interesting. I've, I've spoken to Stallone on the phone once. Wow. That was an amazing experience, but I've, I bet I've never like sat down with a guy and he's like a guy that if, you know, I would just love to have a cup of coffee. I don't even know if he drinks coffee, a protein shake. I know what you meant. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just, <laughs> whatever you ingest, Sly. <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever, tomato juice, whatever it is, man, <laughs> just to sit down and and just, you know, listen, like like that's a guy It's like I don't write a book, Sylvester, like do a podcast I, I need you to share it all, brother. Like well, you know, I need you, know, you to share on, it all. On El Rey, he had those sit downs with Robert Rodriguez, right. that director's chair series, and I love that Rodriguez does that because he's the kind of guy, filmmaker to filmmaker, you do like he knows the right questions to ask. That series, you know, Guillermo del Toro was on there, John Carpenter was on there, and he did one with Stallone. And yeah, and again, not enough. I agree with you. I hope that Stallone is writing his autobiography. Talking about a documentary, right? I I would love to do like a Stallone documentary. Totally. I'm I'm just fascinated with that guy. Everything from the bombs like Oscar and, uh, oh, God, what was his movie? Rhinestone with... uh, Rhinestone, (laughs) Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. But I even liked uh, the, the cop, if it wasn't a cop movie, I don't know, Bullet to the Head. Bullet to the head, yeah, for sure. I liked it. I really liked it, man. I got to be, and even the first prison break, I'm like, okay, entertaining enough, oh, decent popcorn movie. Guys, you know. got, guys got shots, man. Like, I wanted him to be the Punisher for a long time. He would have made an excellent Punisher, hundred percent. You know, um, my wife, he would have made a great Nick Fury. Totally. My wife was watching Assassins the other day. I love that movie. It's like the missing link, right? It's like the movie that bridges Stallone from like the '80s <laughs> to the, like the 2000s. It's like this weird, <laughs> and like the Wachowskis wrote it. And like Richard Donner directed, and Japan. I didn't know. I didn't know the Wachowskis wrote Assassins. The Wachowskis wrote Assassins. Wow. Yeah. Like Dick Donner directed it. Julianne Moore's in there. Bandera. Yes. It's it's it. It's just one of those things where like the '90s happened, and <laughs> I like the specialist that way too. Go on. Oh, this like it with a John Barry score that's gorgeous. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Like, some of my favorite John Barry cues are in The Specialist. Like, will you call me that little jazzy bit? Like, that can play it on piano. But You're like, killing me. Yeah, like, it's... <laughs> these pictures are insane. Like, if, if, I, if I look people in, a, you know, in the eye and be like, you know that there's a movie where Sylvester Stallone is trying to kill James Woods over <laughs> Sharon Stone with hidden bombs, and Rod Steiger plays a Cuban. <laughs> and this is a real film. <laughs> like this is more, more audacious than yeah, more audacious than Charlton Heston being the Mexican guy in Tucker with a Evil. John Absolutely. Barry score backing all of this up. <laughs> You're right, man. No, I agree with you. I no, and truly a fascinating career. Absolutely, yeah. and I hope he stays true to his word because the way Creed Two ends, it's like 
you don't need Rocky doesn't need to show up anymore. He, his story's over. They should leave it exactly where they leave it. I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I mean, I, I just pity the fool who doesn't put Mr. T in the third one. <laughs> you know, honestly, that you know, I I understand. And I, and again, in that slate uh, essay about the whole Rocky film series, they they make a really strong point about Mr. about Clubber Lang, and how you know, yeah, Clubber Lang's an asshole to Rocky. Fine, but. Like he's just working hard and doing everything you should be doing as an up and coming fighter and training hard and is very focused. And you, it, there's really kind of like a, Hey, you know, actually clever Lang, you know, they make him the bad guy. And then all of a sudden, okay, Rocky learns how to fight like Apollo and he's fighting better. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. That, you know, Hey man, it's, it's a fun action. Moment. I used to say that when I would spar people in Taekwondo class, they had, <laughs> you are so bad. Come on, fight. Come on, come on, fight. You are so bad. Um, it's, yeah, it, well, I, you know what I want to see? I want to see Clubber Lang in his, in his second or third act of, of his life with like grills on the home shopping network. And like a sitcom, like that's what I want to see. I want to see. I want us to cut the Clubber Lang, and he's on a sitcom. Everyone loves Clubber. That's fantastic. And he's just like rich, and everyone loves him now. <laughs> I think Reinvention. that's. I I understand, man. I I live that story watching George Foreman. Absolutely, that would be amazing. <laughs> that's, that's, Hilarious. That's You're that's what I love to see. Now, do you have enough energy to still talk about Titans? I love these tangents we've gone on. Oh yeah, yeah, I can. I okay, can, good. I can give you uh, like another twenty minutes or so. All right, very good. Then let's let's spend it talking Titans, dude. As I told you before we started recording, I am a convert. I was as many were when we saw the the trailer. We're like, I, I don't know, man. I don't know. But I was like, you know something? I'll get I'll get it. I want to see it. If it sucks, I'll cancel my DC Universe subscription. No, no harm, no foul. I'm enjoying it. I think it's great. I'm I'm through Hawk and Dove, the second episode with Hawk and Dove. Right on. And and I love I, the characters are definitely different. If you're a Wolfman and Perez fan and you haven't watched it, expect a different interpretation of a lot of the core characters. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. And it's and it's at least interesting. And um, it explains the differences in a very matter of fact way and it's and again you, it's your choice to accept it or not you know it's like me with the x-men i'm not the biggest x-men fan and i always respected what wolfman and perez did with titans but i wasn't a teenager so it didn't speak to me right. the way it did you know people your age and and even younger and everything so it didn't hurt me when we saw what matt what brian singer did with the x-men and and you know brett radner or whatever and the others but and the same goes with this titan show it's like you're not offending me with a different interpretation i appreciate it and um yeah it's it's a great story and let's we can start just with the core characters no i i really do i mean honestly yeah i mean i'm jeff himself jeff johns has told me one of the greatest things about dick grayson is He's like the most liked person in the DC comic book universe because he's the most personable guy. And and Jeff put it in a great way. He's like, if you're stuck and you got to do a cross country road trip, you want Dick Grayson next to you oh, because totally. he's a great guy. Everybody loves him. You know that he's just got his head you know straight. And this Dick Grayson is still finding himself. And in that, I don't know if I'm not with Batman. I don't know who I am. And that's kind of one of the main story points of the, of the series right now. And I'll let you talk about it <laughs> yeah you know the 
early on in the process, Jeff talked to us about wanting to uh, capture the effect of the Wolfman and Perez stories, but we didn't have to marry ourselves to their details. Now, part of that mm-hmm. is just the necessity of the format, right? Like, you know, certain things moving into live action, you want to handle certain things, you handle them the way you do. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, the great thing about working with Jeff and Akiva and, and, and Greg uh, Walker, the, the showrunner, is they they harness a lot of creativity and then they can focus it to where they need it to go. And, you know, with Dick Grayson, uh, you know, we knew we had Brenton and Brenton is an incredibly likable guy. He's, yeah. he's a nice guy. He's an interesting guy. Uh, and, you know, and he embodies uh, a lot of those qualities innately. Um, and, you know, when you know you have an actor that's like that, you can do things that are interesting and, and, and know you're not going to, you know, kind of stray too far off the course. And like Anna is awesome. You know, it's Corey and yes, uh, it's you know, as great as Rachel and Ryan is great as as Gar. Um, Absolutely, the core is fantastic. Truly, these these actors, and again, there are differences in these portrayals than what we what we saw in the comics. It's okay; their stories are interesting. I I don't you know it's still a mystery in terms of Corey's origins, at least where I am at the series, uh, which is episode nine, the second time we see Hawk and Dove. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's I I look forward to finding out where that story goes. Is she going to be an alien? Is she going to be some sort of ancient, you know, a representative of some sort of ancient race? I don't want the answer. I'm happy to wait. But yeah, that's an interesting mystery. Raven, uh, and again, I want I want your comments. It's again, I liked in the comics that she was a person that knew she came from demons and kind of a different, a more adult character. I like the romance with her and Wally in the comics, but I've grown to like this young kid that is, you know, a, a contemporary of Gar's and, uh, and, and, you know, confused with who she is rather than the, the faded, like kind of almost like specter, like sort of, you know, faded character that, yeah, this, this is why I need to separate myself from the group. I know what I am. And I can't really be always a part of the group because of this darkness in me and stuff. Whereas this kid wants to be just normal and everything. And it's it's sympathetic and it's different. But I but I really do like the way that you guys are playing it. Well, it's you, you can't really do a a comic book team story um, that wrestles with adolescence without wrestling with that critical part of adolescence, which is not not really knowing who you are and being afraid of what you might be. Yep. And, uh, and you know, and that's something that we wanted to engage, you know, um, just in, from a psychological point of view and to, to ground things with reality, you know, when it serves us, uh, to just make things a bit more visceral because of it. Like, um, you know, I'm, I'm really fond of, uh, that, that scene I, I put together, when Gar talks to Rachel about what it's like to transform. I think it was in episode yeah. five or something. Yes. Um, and, and that was born out of me wanting to see that scene in the X-Men movies. Me wanting to see that sort of uh, authentic exploration of the experience, you know, um, and, and, and how that could build, like, real human connection, you know, uh, about it. And, and, they give us a lot of space, the the producers and, and, and everyone to explore those ideas. Um, and I wasn't incredibly familiar with the Titans coming into the show. I, I'm a Batman guy and died in the wool when it comes okay. to that. 
And because of that, I'm very familiar with, you know, a lot of Dick Grayson stuff. But I wasn't a guy who was reading a lot of Titans um, because I, I didn't read a lot of comics that would go cosmic very often. Okay. And so when you had characters, you know, like Coriander or like Raven, those weren't really the books I was reading. I was reading a lot more of like the kind of, you know, post Frank Miller, I guess, um, style of. Of, of like superhero storytelling or like I'm with you like John Burns Man of Steel which I loved um, but it was very sort of like a kind of a classic rendering of Superman in a lot of ways yeah and it was a very grounded too I mean, well I mean eventually he goes off in space but a lot of it had to do with like metropolis and street level problems and things like yeah, that yeah you know like and like him handing Batman kryptonite so Batman could kill him if you went too far the best like one that. of the best scenes absolutely man seriously that was great I yeah. still have a crush on that Lois Lane that's on the cover with the black skirt and the bangs um, I'm with you <laughs> And the weirdly purple hair. <laughs> oh man, I spent I spent all of high school looking hair. for some John Byrne dimples. Um, That's so funny. By the way, I love Corey's Batgirl almost uh, color of her uh, both dress and costume because uh, it's so funny. I don't. I, I I suppose it was probably the same palette as as in the comics. That there was like, well, actually, that's not true because Batgirl in the comics had more of a classic bat sort of suit. But this kind of looks like Bar- uh, Yvonne Craig's kind of color scheme <laughs> as far as Batgirl and uh, it's and Corey go. You know, just like seeing like how much effort goes into the wardrobe and the costumes and and how it all comes together. You know, it's you know like like I like I've been telling you, John, it is a wild ride being me right now. You know, it's got to be man. That's awesome being in the center of all this stuff and. And, you know, being able to, to write something and then have the actors say it, you know, like, like it, it, it's, I remember when I was on set for episode seven, um, that's asylum. Uh, yes. Uh, and I was having a conversation with Brenton about something, uh, something, something about the scene, whatever. And, you know, and he was dressed in the Robin suit. Uh huh. And like, part of me is like twelve years old talking to Robin, and I'm trying to not show that to him because that would invalidate me instantly in the eyes of the thespian. Uh, but he looks a lot like Robin's supposed to look. Yeah. So it's really hard. And then we'd have the conversation. We'd go off and we would do it. And then inside, I'm like giggling because like there's Robin, right? Um, and and working on a show like Titans is like having a moment like that four times a day, every day, right? Where you're just like. First, you freak out because you're just in a room with Jeff Johns for like six hours, <laughs> right? Like, how did this happen? You know, and then and then maybe like you know, tw- like once a month or something, Jeff like looks at you and says like, "You did a good job with that thing," and you're like, "Well, that feels good." And then at the same time, you're in a room with Akiva Goldsman. Amazing, you know, and and like you grew up watching his movies, you studied his movies to learn how to write your own stuff. Understood. Right? Yes, indeed. And and it it. It keeps you it keeps you humble and and Greg I didn't know much about a lot of his work going into the show because I didn't know a lot about TV I didn't know many showrunners but Berlanti or no the showrunner uh, excuse me yeah Greg but Walker go having, on what other shows what other shows does he uh, run he he's he ran like without a trace for, like forever oh wow he uh, uh, ran that Halle Berry show Extant he comes out of like the Chris Carter okay. space worked in the X Files oh wow he, okay he did a little bit of Smallville with Mark Verheiden way back in the day very um, cool. You know, and he's just done like so much stuff, and and you're like, whoa, like this is this is the the landscape I'm in, uh, and it's it's actually stuff that I use in in the in the writing. You know, I mean, I can put some of those feelings inside of Gar Logan, right? 
like that's cool. like whoa sure like all that whoa energy it comes out of a lot of that um so it's it's really like a full circle journey for me because in one year you know i went from not really doing anything with dc at all besides like michael cray which was in its own like the Wildstorm universe so it wasn't yes did to writing five issues of detective preparing to write outsiders and then writing robin in a television show which is like <laughs> the trifecta for the batman nerd right like it's, amen absolutely like, the batman <laughs> gods have smiled upon me this day um so it's it's a it's a lot it's it's uh uh but everyone is uh is is, is it's a really great unit you know we don't have any personality issues to deal with which is rare on these things um but we don't you know everyone kind of gets along really well um cool and uh it's just a phenomenal experience to to be part of and the and because you have different characters like a like cory and gar and dick you know uh and raven there's elements of everything there's like there's like jason Bourne like action there's there's traditional like 70s dario argento style horror there's little sure. there's the sci-fi aspects, you know, and there's a little bit of sitcom in there. And uh, as a writer, you're able to play with all of these different styles and and get to write so many different kinds of things and blend them all together. You know, like the episode five I wrote is basically a western. It's you know, sure the team moves in, you know, they're 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 putting themselves up in the in the in the overnight place in the town and then the, you know here come the black hats to try to get them and what are they going to do right so it's got a very kind of western feel and it's real bravo yeah Rio bravo totally one of my favorite uh pictures. love that movie love absolutely that. Love man precinct 13 you know i love sure. anything anything based on ghosts of mars even whatever it's still based sure on yes um and then you know episode seven asylum is kind of more in the psychological horror space Absolutely. Where yes. I, I get, you know, I put some nods Thomas Harris in there. There's a little oh, bit, cool. a little bit of Lecter kind of going on in some of those. Definitely, bits. definitely and, some Lecter in there. Yes, indeed. And, and a kind of a, an older Brad Anderson picture called Session Nine. That's uh, about a uh, insane asylum. I, I kind of use that as a reference, you know, kind of in that place. And very cool. The greatest thing about the show for me is how, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I have a lot of uh, a lot of influences. My my interests are, are very syncretic, and uh, I, I struggle a little bit to find outlets for all the different kinds of energies that I have, right? Um, and the great thing about Titans, the way it's constructed, and really, I guess, you know, from like Marvin and, you know, and George and the old, you know, DC regime that put them all together, they created a narrative world where you can sort of do many different kinds of things, and... And I appreciate it, and we're able to do that. Um, and I'm really excited about what we're doing uh, uh, for the season. We're, we're back at work in season two. Fantastic. Um, grateful for everyone that's watched it and, and tweeted me and told me they enjoyed my work. And I, I really genuinely I appreciate every single one. And if I don't say thank you, it's because I didn't see it. Um, and I try as hard as I can to go through and thank everybody because it really means a lot that someone would uh, – take a look at something that I've done and, and take their time to, you know, tell me that they enjoyed it. Um, so, so yeah, um, Titans has been a fantastic experience uh, and I'm just proud to be a small part of it. And if people are still on the fence of getting the series or not, or getting the streaming ser- service to see the series, the uh, honestly, Brian, your, your episodes are fantastic. Also, the Doom Patrol episode is everything you want it to be, because that's the thing. There are differences about the core Titans, but it's interesting that 
uh, the introduction of the other DC heroes in this series. First of all, the Doom Patrol, and I, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Jeff's interpretation of the Doom Patrol that he has done in previous Titan stories and the like. Um, that was fan- That episode was perfect, and absolutely everything you wanted in a Doom Patrol film or television appearance. It pays off. Hawk and Dove, and it was real. I mean, I enjoyed their first appearance. Their second appearance that really goes into the full history of the Hawk and Dove dynamic, yep. and Don isn't forgotten, because at first it really is... Oh, yeah, the Akiva directed Hank that. Hank and Donna. Yeah, What's that? I think Akiva directed that himself. Okay, it makes sense, and it's... It, I really... You know, and also, they introduce what I believe to be, without spoiling, a different idea of their origin that gets very dark, but it makes sense for the Hawk and Dove dynamic. It certainly explains Hank's character in a much more sympathetic way. Well, Apple, and the guy who plays uh, uh, Hawk, you know, he's such a nice guy. Uh, to be, that's cool. To be, you know, a guy who looks like an action figure. Oh, um, my God, yes. Oh, Jesus, yeah, he's a, yeah, you're right. Part of the, the most difficult thing... He's a thing, Drago. He could have been Drago oh, if, if uh, Rocky IV were made today. Oh, absolutely. The most difficult thing about working <laughs> on a show like this is that you're around people that have just won the genetic lottery twice. <laughs> And it, it can yeah. make you feel like an orc sometimes. Like, <laughs> if you find yourself having a conversation with Anna Diop and, and Minka Kelly, you just want to cover yourself in, a, in like a robe and don't look upon me. Exactly. You know, like, right. like you know, it's like, why, why are you speaking to Quasimodo, right? <laughs> so that it's a, it's a crucible that you, you have to, you have to rebuild your ego afterwards. But the luck of the, the good part is, Everyone is so incredibly nice, right? Like that's cool. You know, I mean, I, I could probably go without hearing a PA gasp at how cute Brenton is. If that never happens again, nice. that would be all right. But it will happen again because life is what it is. Um, and he's and, and, and he's like so shy about it, which just makes it even worse because he's like nice about it. And you're like, can sure. you can you be bad at something? Can can you just like? I don't know, man. Slap the bagel out of my hand so I know you're Scott you Porter is like that, too. Scott Porter is like Matt and I on Old Gorgeous and stuff, and it just kills me because he's an incredibly nice, down-to-earth guy. And, yes. I, and, it, and, you know, and he's like, he's like, oh, I love Word Balloon. I'm like, what are you wasting your time listening to my crap? I'm like, you're Scott Porter. Go out and have fun, man. If I looked like you, I wouldn't be listening to my show. I'd be having fun, man. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, like Minka is on set or something, and you're just like, she's a, oh my God. You look so cool. I just want to throw something at you. <laughs> just, I know. Just to, just to take it, just to take you off the game a little bit. Just take see you down a peg. I'm with Yeah, just so I can see you react, right? Oh, man. But, but really, those, uh, especially, and I literally just saw today uh, the Hawk and Dove, the second Hawk and Dove episode. It's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And it, and it really, it goes to the core of both. Hank and Donna and Hank and Don in a great new modern way that absolutely fits. And I'm assuming, again, I think it might have been made for the series because I've read several, unless there is uh, some sort of reboot that gave this dark uh, origin to Hank and Don. I, I don't remember that ever being there before. Well, and, I, and I've really, since the crisis, when they killed Don, I really haven't seen Don's story explored. It's always been more about Hank and Don. Versus Hank and Don, and it was—I really liked what they did. And it again because 
it's easy to it's easy to dismiss Don because he was the pacifist, right? The way that Ditko and and whoever was if it was Steve Skates or whoever writing it originally. So yeah, again, and I loved those even early seventies Titan stories where Hank and Don were part of the Titans and everything and and showing up. Um, yeah, it's a it's no, it's really really great. And Donna Troy, good lord. Oh, I mean, yeah. like, what a, what a perfect characterization for Donna Troy. Yeah, and Connor Leslie, the actor, um, is just one of the most interesting kind of kind of people I've met in a while. She's a great photographer in real life. Her Instagram. Oh, that's interesting because yeah, they made her. Uh, I don't know if Donna was ever a photographer in the comics, but yeah, she's that's part of the story too. That she's a great photographer. Yeah, it's like just the super smart. Like you know, it's kind of embodies like the the stability the. The uh, um, kind of the wisdom, you know, yes. the wisdom beyond the years, sort of thing, and um, and she she has like a bit of a regal quality about her when you meet her in real life. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's remarkable. Like it's a great experience to be a part of, and uh, the what Jeff and Greg, you know, and Akiva have been able to accomplish is 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 you know I'm I'm constantly impressed by it because even when you're writing the scripts and you're breaking the stories and you're doing the whole thing. Uh, I don't see all the edits come together because I'm not in post production all the time. Sure, and sure. Uh, I'm still, you know, you just don't don't really know what you what you have really. Um, you know, in my episodes, I got to work with two really excellent directors. Mira Minan was the director of episode five. She's wonderful. Um, Alex Kaliminos directed episode seven, equally wonderful, and two very different styles. Um, and that's something that's great about TV is you get to work with filmmakers because I have weird aspirations to make a film at some point. Um, and to be able to work with those filmmakers and see how they approach the material and work with actors and, and kind of run the set, that's that's awesome. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to graduate school, but I'm getting paid, uh, which is great because I still owe NYU money. So uh, <laughs> it's it, it all balances itself out. But, um, I hear you, man. <laughs> but yeah, uh, 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 definitely stick with it. I mean, Titans goes to some places in the first season, um, and you're going to want to kind of keep it keep it going because um, I think we uh, kind of bring more and more surprises as the show goes on. Well, when you're ready with Outsiders, and and and, and honestly, man, as you know, anytime you have time in the future to come back, you're always welcome. I've really appreciated the two conversations we've had on the record, and also I appreciate what you, you as you're talking about your uh, filmmaking exploration. You've you've been very vocal about it as well on social media, and and much like you were explaining about what a Kubrick might, might uh, or a Kubrick might do with Instagram, hmm. I know you are like flirting with the possibilities of YouTube and and some other things to yeah, do you know, some experimentation. I you know I'll have some weird you know new wave thing that I throw out there. Probably cool. sooner than later, you know. I mean, uh, cool. Like I said, punk rock still to the core. Hey, man. Uh, again, as you know, and as I told you off the air after our first conversation, that's why Word Balloon exists, man. I wasn't getting creatively not that, and not to impress the sun or imprint this on you, but to you know the, that the the dissatisfaction I have in my broadcasting career, rather than get angry, it's like make your own shit and oh, yeah, do what you want to do, and that's what I'm doing with Word Balloon. That's that's my you know that's kind of like my governing you know principle of productivity is uh, put it you know make more art right yep. <laughs> like at the yep. end of the day like whatever it is channel it into a project and and use it because whatever feeling you know and I and I, actually this is a good place to end it you know like yeah um, I I I really do feel like the universe 
wakes up things in us and it does not wake up something in us that we're not prepared to follow through. So it, it's not cruel, right? The universe is not a cruel place. So you know, when you have those instincts to do things to get something started, remember it all starts with simple steps. And uh, if you're listening to this and you've got creative aspirations of your own, follow them. Because there was a time not so long ago when I was just jotting ideas down in the napkin in a bar, not really sure if I was ever going to have a career, right? So we all start in that place and we can all get to get to a better one. So, you know, kind of, you know, keep working, you know, and, and keep writing and uh, take care. It's all about the journey, as you say, in the Killmonger miniseries. And I agree. And I think that's what makes that story interesting in American Carnage. Both series off to great starts. And again, man, your work on Titans Excellent stuff, and truly, man, thank you for allowing me to be at least uh, you know someone to observe the journey from your standpoint. And uh, I look forward to future conversations. And yeah, this is a marathon, but honestly, man, great stuff. And I I know a lot of people, creative people that are inspired to make their own stuff, will definitely take a lot from our conversation. So thanks a lot, man. Thank you for having me, John. There you go, another fun talk. I hope it uh, entertained you while you were going through your work day or. Uh, Christmas shopping or working out, maybe you were on a long, uh, you know, trek uh, commute or uh, just traveling for the holidays to a holiday party. But uh, really nice conversation with Brian Hill. He's going to be back, and again, one of these guys. And I feel the same way about the women that I appreciate them. Uh, like I said, letting me be an observer as their uh, career evolves and they get into some really interesting jobs, uh, great opportunities for collaboration. And we get to hear it firsthand here at Word Balloon. Honestly, uh, this is what interests me. And I'm really glad that it interests you as well. Because uh, these are, you know, inspiring conversations if you're a budding creator. And uh, just entertaining as well. I mean, uh, you know, it's the DVD commentary, if you will, of uh, some of these creators as they go through their creative process. Really enjoyed today's show. I hope you did as well. It was all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Truly, League, thank you very much for your support. Uh, especially at times like this, the holiday season, the end of the year, uh, I can reflect and thank you for your direct support through Patreon. If you want to help out and subscribe to Word Balloon, patreon.com slash Word Balloon, or click on the Patreon ad at the front page of wordballoon.com. As always, thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. You can go to your local shop right now. You will find amazing books. You know, they, they, they don't pull the punches, man. They have attractive covers, and what's inside is attractive as well. Great series that deserve your attention. These are books like Cullen Bunn and Dalibor's Telejax Witch Hammer that's uh, coming out on uh, Wednesday the 19th. It's Aftershock's first original graphic novel. You got things like Animosity by Marguerite Bennett and Raphael De La Tour. Lollipop Kids from Adam and Aiden Glass and Diego Yapur. Garth Hennis has a ton of books at Aftershock, among them Jimmy's Bastards and, of course, A Walk Through Hell. These are tremendous books, great genres, great creators, and uh, something fresh on the pages that you will appreciate and the person you're shopping for will absolutely appreciate as well. Check them out. You will find full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on all of these books to order through your local shop at AfterShockComics.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. More great stuff coming in the days ahead. We're only midway through December, and lots more great conversations are coming up. Very excited about the conversations I already have lined up, 
and very excited as well about uh, those that uh, are, you know, they just haven't been locked down in terms of conversation, but they're coming in the days and weeks ahead, and uh, some old favorites are coming back, and also new conversations as well. I hope you'll join me for the journey. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.